Okay, just another from Rahim. Salaamu Alaikum, everyone. Welcome to another amazing session on uh, our Saturday session. Um, today we are covering Surah uh, Juma. Um, you know, I, I have to say, with everything going on in the world, um, especially this week, especially in Palestine, um, I'm so grateful anytime we can come together and work on something that really matters and makes a difference and helps us to get grounded again. I'm wearing my, my Palestinian shirt in support of obviously the horrific things that have been happening there, um, of course, notably, I mean, ongoing, but notably this week, the, the assassination of uh, Al Jazeera reporter Shirin Abu Akla. And, you know, all the reports that are coming out afterwards, I don't know if, you know, if people are following, but obviously that the funeral procession was attacked by the Israelis. Um, even a story this um, morning that um, as some of the Palestinians were leaving their home to go to the funeral, busloads of um, Israeli settlers came to move their stuff into a space, um, that to, into that home. Um, you know, just in Germany, uh, saw, someone sent me a headline about how Germany banned um, a vigil, vigil in uh, support um, because it fell under their uh, prohibition against protesting before the, the Nakba, or uh, uh, the, you know, so, uh, like marking of the, the Nakba, which I think is May 15th. Anyway, there's just so much um, horrific news, and we obviously know the ongoing, um, you know, what's happening with Al-Aqsa Mosque, and I mean, it just, you know, it's really hard to watch, and it's especially when you are, you know, reading from so, so far away, um, and it's hard for me, um, for someone who doesn't even have family or a history there, you know, and so I can only begin to imagine how hard it is for people who have such a long history and such a, a long connection. Um, so, you know, if... If none, nonetheless, if, if all we can do is just at least come together and talk about, you know, justice, recognize what's happening, um, recognize that, you know, I feel like this space is one of these spaces where, you know, Sheikh Alhamdulillah talks about something that can give us um, some grounding, some hope, some um, hope in the sense of we have a role to play, that this is not just a hopeless situation, um, that when we go back and we understand what God is calling for um, in, in the Quran in terms of our dedication to justice, in terms of even just our own internal sense of, okay, I'm willing to do whatever I can do on my own. If God recognizes that in each and every one of us and we reach a collective mass, then inshallah, Allah will help us do something. Um, so I actually wanted to just share, um, I, I was actually, I'm, I'm, obviously devastated every time I see these headlines in the news that, you know, very, take a very neutral stand, you know, the, this reporter was killed, you know, somehow, you know, mysteriously killed, or that she died, as opposed to she was actually assassinated or targeted. Um, and especially in the US media, this is what tends to happen is this whitewashing. Um, but I'm always very happy when I actually find um, a news source that is honest and truthful and does talk about the facts. And so I have to highlight that here. I've talked about them before. The show is called Breaking Points um, with Crystal Ball and Sagar Anjeri. And they actually on, um, on the 12th, which I guess was Wednesday, um, ha had a whole segment about this where they spoke very frankly and very honestly um, about what happened here, about the evidence, how, you know, basically the West um, will tend not to criticize um, Israel and how, you know, they will, the IDF will probably get off scot-free. But it was just really clarifying and at least, you know, to hear someone in the news media be honest and truthful and direct. And so, um, you know, these are independent 
journalists. Um, I feel like we, even as individuals, should support these types of efforts. So if you get a chance to go to YouTube, find them, Breaking Points, subscribe to their channel, become you know a paid supporter, then they can actually do more also to elevate um, you know what's what's really happening. Um, and then of course um, the the plug for C.J. Werleman, who is just out there day and night, um, you know, addressing uh, atrocities committed against Muslims. That's so important um, for us as Muslims to get behind because. He is taking on a Muslim cause when he is not even himself Muslim. So um, the other thing is, while I was on the uh, watching the show um, Breaking Points, um, you know they talk about all different kinds of things that are going on, from you know Ukraine to inflation to whatever. But they highlighted a story that I thought was really important for me to share, um, because as we often say, you know we in this space talk about topics that are often not not addressed in other Muslim spaces, and this is really important. But it's um, the rise in overdose deaths, um, you know, drug overdoses, basically. Um, in you know, people thought it would be like something that, you know, took a hike because of the pandemic. But so in 2020, um, the numbers clearly spiked. But now the numbers for 2021 have come in, and alarmingly, they have taken an even larger spike. And people even believe in this coming year, it's going to be even greater. So in terms of, there was a nearly 15% increase um, in 2021, which um, was preceded by a 30% increase in overdose deaths in 2020. And a lot of that, um, as they were explaining, comes from um, the fact that people are not as uh, easily able to get like oxy through prescription because of the crackdown in um, you know what's been happening in the opioid world. It's not as easy to get like opioids So when people become desperate they go to the black market and get something that they actually don't even know what's what's in it And so they might think that they're getting you know um, Oxy or they might be thinking they're getting even Adderall or they think they're getting you know something else and it's and what's cut into it is fentanyl which is much more de deadly or methamphetamine um, and so what's happening is a lot of the people that are affected, obviously, are, are youth, teenagers. And um, this is extremely um, alarming. Um, and then on top of that, um, they went from talking about drug overdoses to alcohol use. And although people don't talk about this, the numbers of people who die from alcohol use have also been skyrocketing. So I think they were 25% higher in 2020, year to year. And then in 2021, they grew again, um, I think, hang on one second, nationally 22% higher in this past year. And that it's reached um, ec epidemic proportions. Um, so in 2019, an estimated 52,500 people in the US died from alcohol-related causes. Um, and for 20 and 21, or the pandemic years, that figure exceeded 70,000 people each year. And this is um, research from, um, it's one of the medical um, medical journals, and uh, we'll, I'll ask. Um, it's actually this is information from the CDC as well. So I'll have um, this posted to our our website, not our website, but our news site, which um, I just want to highlight again. Um, this is a, a separate uh, site that you can get the link on my uh, weekly email, uh, where we put all the links to the news articles and things that we reference either here or um, at the Friday Whippa. So. Um, the, you know, the, one of the things that they talked about is clearly um, loneliness is an epidemic um, and, you know, pandemic didn't help because clearly people, you know, had to stay in, um, go virtual as far as their work, um, you know, socialization dropped. Um, and certainly for teenagers who are, you know, a very um, vulnerable group that, you know, became much more difficult in terms of their isolation. 
Um, but also they, they pointed to a lack of purpose, a lack of meaning, you know, just not socializing, not being with friends was not the only part, but just feeling like, you know, what is the point in all of this? Um, and so that always brings me back to what we're doing here because, again, I'm so grateful when we come together and we learn from the Quran what is it that God wants from us, where do we find our meaning, where do we find our, our center, our foundation. Um, and, you know, like, as I've said to many people, you know, we, as parents of a 17-year-old um, who, you know, has an outlook where you see the bad news in the world um, and, you know, his friends are largely atheist or agnostic um, and they have a very um, almost fatalistic view of what is happening and, and you know, certainly um, understandably so with all the bad news from climate change to war to, you know, pretty much everything that you, you watch in the news. Um, it's so important for us as Muslims um, who understand and who have valued this message through the Quran um, and found our own connection um, and purpose and meaning that there's so much that we can do to share and help. I mean, we, we have a lot of the answer that I think, you know, we can offer to humanity. Um, and so um, I'm just grateful to be a part of this. And I hope that everyone will, you know, share with others that, that if they're searching for meaning, this is a wonderful place um, to start that journey. Um, and certainly I hope that everyone has had a chance to get a copy of The Prophet's Pulpit. Um, I wanted to share, this is our, our new book that just came out from Masuli Press, if, if you're not aware. Um, and I wanted to share a really beautiful review that someone posted on Facebook. Um, he, and this, is, this is what it looks like, but it says, I just finished this book and it is on track <clears throat> to be Book of the Year 2022. If you are looking for the perfect blend of spirituality and politics, a call to worship and a call for justice. This is the book for you, especially when we live in a time when most khutbahs put us to sleep. These ones will wake you up. Sheikh Abul Fadl addresses issues of distance from the mosque, the concept of light in the Quran, the imperative of justice, as well as corrupt scholars and illegal organ harvesting. If you have the money, go and buy this book right now. If you don't, message me and you can borrow it. I will be reading this book every Ramadan and will work um, some of these ideas into my own khutbahs and he, he actually is he gives khutbah at, at a mosque so um, this is someone that we don't know but um, you know alhamdulillah is such a beautiful and, and a lot of people have been posting really powerful um, reviews also on Amazon um, and we're, we're just we're so grateful to hear the really positive response but most importantly it's you know as, as I've said before when you read a book that wakes you up and empowers you and actually makes you proud to be Muslim and make you feel like there is something that we are supposed to do as ethical active Muslims. Um, it's, it's very empowering, it's very liberating. And so I hope that um, you will, you know, read the book, share it with others and, and find, find, you know, solace there because uh, we certainly need it. It's a, it's a really difficult time right now. Thank you everyone for being with us. We're looking forward to another amazing session and uh, inshallah, um, also, before I go, tomorrow at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we are going to be having um, part two of the Q&A with Sheikh Abul Fadl um, on uh, dispelling myths um, for spiritual and sexual abuse, especially um, at the hands of uh, religious scholars. But, um, you know, we certainly answer, you know, other questions that have to do with abuse and healing and all of that. Part one was incredible, and I'm looking forward to another co uh, amazing conversation tomorrow. So if you want to join us, um, please do register um, for the Zoom call, and of course you can watch it after the fact as well. So thank you again for joining us. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa subhanallah al-Aliyya al-Azim. Wa salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad wa ala alihi 
وأصحابه ومن تبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين So inshallah today um, we are talking about Surah Al-Jum'ah uh, short surah uh, short surah and it's a very good example of a, a, a surah in the Quran that has not been approached has not been approached systematically the um, the the typical approach to surah al-juma is to say well the surah is among the surah that opens up or with uh, um, with tasbih Subhanallah, or so you know, there are a class. There is a number of surah that open have that opening. Or um, or something of that to that effect, and then that it addresses uh, the Israelites, and after commenting that the that the Israelites who rejected the prophecy of Muhammad um, they are ignored their own revelations so they're as if donkeys carrying books and then to say well and then Surah Al-Jumma moves on to address the issue of Juma in the context of a historical event which we'll, inshallah we'll talk about. Um, and, and that's pretty much it, right? So it's, it's a short surah, and it has these, these themes. But inshallah, as we will see, the, this is, um, this approach, I mean, or approaching this surah to Jumma in this way, um, ignores the heart and soul of Surah Al-Jumma and uh, what it accomplishes. Okay, so among the interesting things is that we have reports, considerable number of reports that tell us that Surah Al-Jumma was revealed after after Surah Al-Saf and before Surah Al-Fatha. And if this is the case, if Surah Juma is revealed after Surah Al-Saf, um, and according to these class of reports, it, it places Surah Juma as having been revealed after Surah Al-Nur, after Surah Al-Hajj, after Surah Al-Munafiqun, uh, definitely after Al-Hujurat, after Al-Mujadala, uh, after Al-Taghabun. 
So that would mean that Surah Al-Jumu'ah is revealed quite late. That it would be uh, indeed in perhaps as late as uh, the eighth year Hijrah or the seventh year Hijrah. But at the same time, this conflicts with a number of narratives that tell us that Surah Al-Jumu'ah was, um, how do I put this? That Surah Al-Jumu'ah was occasioned by a series of events that could have only taken place pretty much within the first three years of Hijrah. So on the one hand, you have reports that tell you that it is revealed towards the late Medina period. Um, but then a series of reports that would necessitate that Surah Al-Jumu'ah was revealed, in fact, towards the early Medina period. And normally the events that, um, that indicate an early Medina, Medina period is that you have um, a, a, an Ansari, As'ad bin Zarara, who... And, and we'll talk about this in, in, a, in a little bit, but uh, reportedly, As'ad ibn Zarara, before the Prophet ﷺ arrives in Medina, uh, organizes Muslims to pray collectively. And in fact, in some reports, it tells us that As'ad ibn Zarara um, and this is, remember, this is before the Prophet ﷺ arrives in Medina, that he meets with his fellow converts to Islam, and there are around 40 or so of them, uh, and that he says, well, you know, the, the Jews pray on Saturday, Christians pray on Sunday, and why don't we pray on a day and according to these reports, it tell us that this day was known as the day of Aruba. That that day was known as the day of Aruba. And that it was As'ad ibn Zarara then organized Muslims to pray in a congregation. And that he named that day, changed the name from the day of Aruba to the day of Jum'ah. And that shortly thereafter, the Prophet ﷺ arrives in Medina, and that according to the set of reports that the Prophet ﷺ would uh, ask Allah to bless and forgive and to bless As'ad ibn Zarara. And when he was asked, well, why are you, why do you always ask Allah to bless As'ad ibn Zarara? And the Prophet ﷺ said, well, it's because this sunnah, the sunnah of Jum'ah, began with him. 
And uh, the Prophet ﷺ, upon arriving in Medina, affirms what As'ad ibn Zarara did, and then the, he first goes to an area called Qaba' and he builds a masjid uh, which existed un until, um, I think the Saudis tore it down, but for, I mean, among the many Islamic architectural um, things that they tore down. But Masjid al-Qaba uh, uh, located where um, uh, Amr ibn Auf, where the Banu Amr ibn Auf are living and that the Prophet prays the first Jumu'ah in Islam in Masjid al-Qaba where, where Banu Amr ibn Auf uh, are living and then he moves from there to um, to an area where did I write it down somewhere? Um, Salim ibn Auf related to the same clan of Amr ibn Auf, Salim ibn Auf were in a wadi, in a, in a valley. And then the Prophet does another Jum'ah there, weeks following. And then Surah Al-Jum'ah is revealed. Well, if, if this is true, then Surah Al-Jum'ah would have been revealed either the first year Hijra, or if sometimes if you work out the weeks between, you know, and you, you work out some of the riwayat, then you could say, well, Surah Al-Jum'ah must have been revealed either the first year of Hijra or the second year of Hijra at the latest. Now this is this is part of um, part of the what can I say the intellectual culture of Quranic studies that never progressed to modern um, methods of inquiry. Because in, in, in the medieval style of the medieval scholarly enterprise was often to preserve competing narratives and to report all of them. And, and then to note what your school of thought, what your scholarly lineage accepts as the more probable, accurate reports, and then to leave it at that. But historical methodology takes many centuries to develop. And what we call historical historicism or historical methodology today is, uh, wouldn't be even recognizable uh, to medieval scholarship. And it is for, for modern Muslims have either continued to repeat medieval scholarship 
verbatim with nothing further, or if they found medieval scholarship to be too cumbersome, too burdensome, they would just ignore it and just give you a conclusion. And the conclusion that you read in modern tafsir is to tell you that, to, to sort of jump to the fiqhi issue position, that Jum'ah has been mandated by God and to ignore or to, to, to allow to, to remain vague, to, to sort of not deal head on with, well, if it's mandated by God, was it really mandated only at the end of the Medina period or at the beginning of the Medina period? And does it make a difference? Well, history makes a difference. But aside from that, as we all see, the message of Surah Al-Jum'ah, I would submit to you, can have only been in the beginning of the Medina period. Because it is not conceivable that this message contextually would have been reserved till after you have Surah Al-Taghabun and Surah Al-Mumtahina and Surah Al-Mujadala and Surah Al-Nur, and, and which would make it very late in the Medina period. Okay. I'm sorry that some of this is a little dense, but it is important when we deal with a surah like Surah Al-Jumah. Now, Okay, so yes, it is quite possible. I have no reason to doubt that As'ad ibn Zarara did, in fact, um, before the Prophet arrived in Medina, did, in fact, organize so that Muslims can pray together. But the reports that claim that As'ad ibn Zarara is the one that called Yawmul Aruba, changed the name to Yawmul Jum'ah, and then that the Prophet validated that, are in direct contradiction to numerous narratives from Arabic literature that identified that same day as Yawm al-Jum'ah long before, long before As'ad ibn Zarara comes into the picture. And in fact, we have narratives that Muslims in the Meccan period refer to Yawm al-Jum'ah as Yawm al-Jum'ah and not as Yawm al-Uruba. So while I have no reason to doubt that As'ad ibn Zarara organized the congregational prayer, uh, uh, prayer 
But I think it is very problematic when we accept these reports that give a role. There, it's a genre of reports that tell you such and such person did X, and then God came and validated this, and it became part of Islam. And many historians do not realize that there is an shu'ubi, uh, there is an, a, 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 an ethnic political motivation behind these reports that these reports that give you the impression that Islam basically validated various Arab practices as God's will were not politically neutral reports that when you delve deeply into the transmission in the, of these reports and the role that these reports played, you, you discover that these reports were very much part of the Umayyad um, pro Qurayshi, um, pro Arab um, political battle in the first couple centuries of Islam. And I am very suspicious. I, I, am, I, I consider these reports very suspect. Uh, for something as core as Yom Juma to be told that it is really began, and in fact, some of these reports tell us that it was Asad ibn Zarara who shortened the prayer from four rakas to two rakas. And most Muslims don't even know who Asad ibn Zarara is. And as an Ansari figure, he was not one of the even the most prominent companions. And it it's extremely problematic. I mean, for me, it's very problematic that someone would just start a practice that um, is the report gives us all types of indications that it was part of Arab culture or has a, a culturally anchored uh, um, dynamic to it. And that the Allah just comes in there and says, yes, this is a good idea, let's just validate it. Okay. Now, the reports that tell us that the Prophet ﷺ, the, the, the first Jum'ah was um, um, I'm blanking out about it. Uh, Amr ibn Awf, that the first Jum'ah was Banu Amr ibn Awf, and, and, and these geographically make sense, that if you're traveling into Medina, you're going to first arrive at the diyar of Amr ibn Awf or Salim ibn Awf, and that if you stop to rest, that, and especially if you stop to rest for a week, it, it would make sense that you would have your first Jum'ah there, but these reports clearly indicate 
it continuing it, that the Prophet, since we are told Surah Al-Jum'ah was revealed after that, not at that occasion, but after that, there is every indication that by the time that the Prophet already arrives in Medina, that he is already practicing the Jummah. Do you see what I'm saying? That, that when Muslims arrive in Medina, it is not that they, as we are told in these reports, that they say, see what As'ad ibn Zarara is doing and say, oh, wow, that's a good idea, let's do it. No, we actually have various reports that indicate that I can't say how early or how late in the Meccan period, but that Muslims were aware of the that the Prophet taught as Jumu'ah as the day of congregation. Uh, in the late Mecca period, before the migration to Medina, but that the practice of Jum'ah as a congregational prayer was interrupted by persecution. But yet, that the Prophet ﷺ, and here the reports vary whether in fact he held Jum'ah with as, uh, as little as four people, uh, Ali radiallahu anh, and um, other companions, or as little as 10, or as, or that because he couldn't get more than um, four people, the Jum'ah was, was not held, Re reports conflict on that. And, and, and as a result, the fiqh as to the minimum number of people at Jum'ah is also conflicts in proportion or in direct correlation to what report you accept. But it is clear that Jum'ah is already a practice that the early Muslims are aware of, that they perform with the Prophet ﷺ when they arrive in Medina. So what occasions Surah Jum'ah in particular? Well, and here, in my opinion, this is around the, the second or the third year Hijrah. Medina, and again, shortly after the Battle of Uhud, Medina is hit by a uh, um, another plague Medina was known for its plagues so many people are falling ill because people are falling ill which is a, a, again we have cumulative historical reports that this takes place shortly after the battle of Uhud um, Anytime there is news of an outbreak of infection in a town or city, trade caravans avoid that location. And because trade caravans, plus I'm sure the news of war, 
which is always scares merchants and scares businessmen away. Uh, because of that, goods that are being goods, uh, there is a shortage of goods in Medina because caravans, trade caravans, in fact, avoid Medina. As a result, there is an inflation and um, shortage of basic goods and the spread of famine and economic need, if not hunger. And that people are already at Jummah with the Prophet when and I forgot the name of the of the leader of the caravan who he's a, he was a convert to Islam who as a convert makes it a point to arrive with his, with his caravan in Medina and because of shortage in goods because of economic need because people was going through a hardship once they hear that the caravan had arrived and the practice was when a caravan would arrive people would play on drums to announce the arrival of a caravan so people heard the drums as the prophet is giving a khutbah and they started withdrawing or sneaking out of Jum'ah one by one. The reports, again, conflict as to how many remained seated in this Jum'ah and did not leave. Some reports say 12 men. Interestingly, what they disagree the most about is the number of women. So some reports say 12 men and seven women some reports say 12 men, no women. Some reports say 12 men, one woman. Some reports say 12 men, three women. Um, although, uh, the, the, again, that's interesting for a historian, right? Um, but it is the the from the, the most reliable narratives, in my opinion, is clearly 12, 12 men and seven women, because we know the women by name and and so on, and then but uh, anyway, so there is a further thing that I'll throw out even before we get into the meaning of Surah Al-Jumah, is that. Reports tell us that bef until this incident, the, until this event, the way Muslims before Jum'ah was like Salat al-Aid. They would pray first and then they would have the khutbah. And that the reason many people snuck out and rushed to the caravan to buy the goods before they run out um, is because they, they had prayed and they were just listening to the khutbah. They, they figured so well the prayer is done. So so what, you know, it's, it's okay if we miss the khutbah considering. 
And that after this event, the Prophet ﷺ reversed the order so that we do the khutbah first and then the prayer. I had spent some time trying to investigate whether this is true or not, and I couldn't reach any type of conclusion that, I mean, it, it, it needs further investigation. I, and I, I don't know, ultimately, I don't know if it's resolvable, but I was very curious to know whether, in fact, this is true that um, that the that the order was like Salat al Eid until this event. Again, you 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 run into many conflicting reports, um, and sometimes chains of transmission can't allow you to to give weight to one set of views over another. Anyway. Now, is the historical event itself important? Yes, because of the message of Surah Al-Jum'ah, as we will see. The crux of the matter is that you have the Prophet in Jummah, in congregation, at a time when people are in serious need, when the caravan arrives, the most natural thing for the people present at Jummah is to think we better get the goods that our family needs before everything is sold, before everything is sold out. What's interesting is that when you delve deeper into these reports, the reason for the anxiety is that there were plenty of people in Medina who were not present in this Jummah. Of course, the reports tell you that these were the hypocrites. Um, and the, the anxiety, well, people who are widely seen as hypocrites might buy the items from this caravan and then sell these items to us at hiked up prices. Which is a very, and then when you're sitting and you're noticing, all it takes is as one or two or a few people to sneak out, and then you start panicking. So you've noticed that a few people have left to go buy what they need, and you're sitting there and say, Oh my god, they're gonna probably buy everything, and I better get there before everything runs out. And we don't know when is the next time that another caravan is going to come uh, with this, um, the disease going on and the news of war and the general anxiety and so on. So, you know, because it is often, 
instead of just talking about it in, in rational terms and historical terms, uh, their, their religion teachers are often just embarrassed about this event. Well, how could it be that the companions of the Prophet leave him and you know it's as if they they left him to just go look at you know um to, to go stroll in the in the marketplace for a leisurely shopping trip it's it's not like that it, it there are these were human beings and as human beings they are suffering need and shortages and when they're happy that the caravan arrives but at the same time they become anxious because they know that the goods are going to be sold and worst of all if they're sold to the wrong type of people including the Jewish tribes that live there in Medina who and we have again some reports about this is that if you Muslims told themselves, well, the Jewish tribes are going, the Jews are going to rush to to purchase everything that, from that caravan, and then they're going to do what the Jewish tribes tended to do with Muslims, and that is, you know, start hiking up prices and holding us um, hostage because of of the fact that they bought everything, and because of the fact that often in Medina they did play that role where. Muslims in, in hardship would often try to buy goods off Jewish tribes who had the connection to have the things that were scarce in the market and they would sell them at a premium price to Muslims. And it is very significant. Now, think about this. And again, in everything in the Quran, this is not about them. This is about us. The revelation of the Quran is about us. If you were one of these people, and that's what matters, if you were one of these people, would you have left the khutbah to which is very rational and psychologically makes perfect sense. Once you see some people that you respect have gotten up, grabbed their shoes or their loafers and left, uh, would you have followed suit? Or would you, as the Quran demands, have given priority to something that seems seems like you can easily make up for, right? You miss this drama, well, we'll pray next drama. This is part of the major significance, and I'll show you how the entire surah ties together. This is part of the major significance of surah to Juma. It's not a footnote. It's not something that you sort of sweep under the rug. It's a major test. And 
you know, a lot of reports, and again, we get into sectarian, unfortunately, we get into sectarianism where, uh, you know, between the Sunnah and the Shia, the, the Sunni reports say, you know, Omar, Abu Bakr, and Osman were among the those who stayed and didn't leave, and then Shia reports that so you know the, the uh, Omar was among, and it was the Ali al-Bayt who stayed. I mean, I'm I'm skipping over this material because it's just an unfortunate relic of of our history. Regardless of who the individuals were, it was a minority of people who thought that they cannot possibly abandon their the the the, the engagement of this prayer before Allah the khutbah of the Prophet in the context of Jum'ah, even if it means major sacrifices in a very concrete and painful way, that the goods in the caravan would be gone by the time that the khutbah is done. It was a minority of people, and when you understand it from this, this, this sense, you'd understand why it's a minority. Because it was a very tough test. And because you can reason to yourself, well, you know, God will understand. The prophet will understand. After all, everyone knows what, you know, that we're in need and my family's in need and I'm just going to, you know, this one time because we don't know when the next caravan. And this is precisely what the people who did withdraw when they, when they are apologizing for what happened. It, the, the constant theme is we didn't know when the next caravan would arrive in Medina. And... And then we get into some reports that actually tells you what the, the actual shortages were. So, you know, um, the need for sha'ir, for instance, the, the, the need for, for wheat and the shortage, wheat shortage in Medina at the time and the caravan, the, 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 uh, the, the people who left, you know, said, oh, the, 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 it has, it has sha'ir, it has sha'ir, and then, so, you know, they, that all plays well. Okay. So this is sort of setting the context for Surah Al-Jumah. And it is interesting, again, because we, 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 we don't do the type of proper vetting People withdrew a number of individuals stayed at Drama, men and women, and then there are a number of unreliable reports 
unreliable that the Prophet ﷺ comments that if it hadn't been for the people who stayed, Allah would have punished Muslims with erasing fire. But these reports are not reliable. If we get into the realm of the reliable, we know that the Prophet ﷺ is disappointed. But if we take out the unreliable reports about a raging fire that Allah would have sent to burn Medina down but for the people who stayed, if we, take, if we exclude these reports, we see a very interesting thing about the personality and character of the Prophet He's disappointed but he doesn't tell the people who left off. He doesn't go after them. And it is the Quran, it is Allah's revelation that comes and embarrasses them. And it is an embarrassment, but at the same time a very tough lesson. Because in response to the Quranic revelation, they wanted to explain themselves. So they said, well, we, you know, we haven't had wheat in our home. We haven't baked bread in our home. We haven't lit a fire in our home for, you know, depending on the report, for a week, two weeks, three weeks. And such and such person, there's one report, I forgot the name of the, says that such and such person who was my path to Islam got up and I followed his sunnah, Prophet. When I saw him withdrew, then I withdrew. But what is fascinating to me is that once the Quranic revelation comes, it's like all the excuses are invalid. Keep your excuses to yourself. Allah ruled on this matter. And I don't want to move on from this point quickly because I, I know that it's not something that you find in the tafsir, but it is critical to understanding what the surah is about. That you, this is about ethical character. This is about your moral choices in life. You are put at a test where you have to decide what takes priority. Now, it makes perfect rational economic sense if you give priority to the caravan, considering what congregational prayer is, in your mind at least. But if Allah is telling us we have to give priority that those people who gave priority to the caravan failed the test, and the people who gave priority to the congregational prayer passed the test, that then begs the question, well, what is the importance of congregational prayer? If Allah says, you made the wrong choice, 
Juma should have taken priority. That only begs the question, well, why is Juma so important? Now, let's just remember that. Okay, so سبح لله ما في السماوات وما في الأرض وهو العزيز الحكيم. Oh, sorry, sorry, this is wrong. This is Surah Al-Saf that I started with. Yeah, يسبح. Surah Al-Saf is starts with سبح لله and Surah جمعة يسبح لله. يسبح لله ما في السماوات وما في الأرض الملك القدوس العزيز الحكيم. Okay, it's just uh, the thing I'll just say about this is that in Tasbih Allah wa Tanzih Allah. Tanzih is to 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 the to recognize the oneness and uniqueness and singularity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Tasbih you know, in the, in the tafsir, they tell you that this could be in three forms. It could be either conscious tasbih or unconscious tasbih or so on, so on. but we don't need to, to get into, um, into that because I think the matter is, is more simple that all creation attests to the creator. And in the innate code that determines the functionality of all created things is a testament and recognition of the creator. Now, in the modern age, you know, we are aware of things like, you know, how DNA and RNA and stuff like that. But regardless of the mechanism, all living things point to the creator. And, and point to a singular creator. The very logic of created things, the, 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 you know, whether you're talking about things like the existence of a golden ratio in creation or the, 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 very, the very fabric of creation, there is the, the, the philosopher behind creation is singular one and only. As they say, كل جوهر يسبح لله. That the, the, the jawhar is the nature, the essence of things. All essences recognize Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And of course, as, as Allah you know, tells us uh, in Surah Al-Baqarah, you know, وَإِن مِنْ شَيْءٍ إِلَّا يُسَبِّحْ لِلَّهِ إلا يسبح بحمده ولكن لا تفقهون تسبيحه 
that everything is, is attests and praises and and affirms the oneness of Allah, but you don't comprehend. And Subhanallah, I mean, I when I read something, when when I think of something like that, the fact of the matter is is that. When centuries later we, we realize things, we discover things like DNA and we discover things like a golden ratio and we, it, it, it allows us to understand the extent to which Allah was telling us that you don't fully understand how entire creation attests to the, to the creator. Okay. Now, from and this is in in as we said the uh, the 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 number of sur that has that beginning of tasbih Allah or sabbah lillah or yusabbih lillah or one variation of the another, but from that that Allah is one, Allah's supernal nature. that this entire creation is interlinked and connected to its creator. It is an extension of its creator. Then we move on to a theme that deserves careful attention. هو الذي بعث في الأميين رسولا منهم يتلو عليهم آياته ويذكيهم ويعلمهم الكتاب والحكمة وإن كانوا من قبل لفي ضلال مبين. So let's see how Muhammad translates this. So Muhammad as it says, he who has sent unto the unlettered, unlettered people an apostle for among themselves to convey unto unto them God's messages. Okay, Muhammad Asa translated and, to them, uh, uh, and caused them to grow in purity and to impart unto them the divine writ as well as wisdom. Whereas before they were indeed most obviously lost in error. And to cause this message to spread from them, okay, this is now the, the second part. So, and then, وَآخَرِينَ مِنْهُمْ لَمَّا يَلْحَقُوا بِهِمْ وَهُوَ الْعَزِيزُ الْحَكِيمُ ذلك فضل الله يؤتيه من يشاء والله ذو الفضل العظيم. Okay, so first uh, that Allah sent a prophet to the Ummiyin. So first issue is Ummiyin. Second extension that there are others other than the Ummiyin who, as Muhammad Azad puts it, and to cause this message to spread from them unto other people as soon as they come into contact with them. For God alone is almighty and truly wise. Okay. The Ummiyin, there is a significant debate
Ummiyin could mean the unlettered people, people who don't read and write. And if so, typically Tafsir tell you that it is the it is this refers to the Arabs because the Arabs were for the most part illiterate people. They didn't read or write. And then Razi, for instance, goes into a long discussion about how, why the, basically he's engaging in the, in, in the theological polemics. Um, Razi, and also you find this in, um, in, um, in Amidi's, uh, um, sorry, in Metaridi's uh, tafsir, well, he says that um, Christians and Jews say, well, why would Allah cho choose a, an illiterate prophet? Well, Allah chooses an illiterate prophet because he was sent to an illiterate people, etc., etc. Uh, you know, usually you they have that response to the polemics of Christians and Jews. But... Ummiyin could also mean not necessarily illiterate or unlettered, but simply sent to Arabs. And this has, and, and then it says, sent to, Ummiyin could also mean other than unlettered or Arabs could also mean to the immediate locality or your 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 if i say your if i reference in 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 usage ummat shakhs it means the immediate people that a person belongs to so it could also mean that allah saying the allah sent the prophet to his immediate locality, and that his the the immediate locality. So his immediate locality would be the Qurayshis, and everyone around the around Quraysh, all of that would be Ummatul Rasul. Okay, now this has significance when you realize that there is is there is a very heated polemic going on between about Ummatul Rasul and the very nature and purpose of the message of the Prophet Early in the Hijra, shortly before the revelation of Surah Al-Baqarah, which you remember addressed the Israelites at length. The Israelites made Jewish tribes made a point in saying that the nature of the message 
of Muhammad is racially defined. That the way they attempted to reconcile the presence of the Prophet in Medina with their own role in Medina is that, well, you, Muhammad, you were sent to your ummah. In this context, ummah didn't mean, as, as it means later on in Islamic theology, ummah al-Islam. But it meant you were sent specifically to Arabs in your immediate vicinity. And that we, the Israelites, are not intended are not targeted by your message. In this polemic, Allah works with ethnicities and Allah does not get, get beyond ethnicities. That in the same way that we Israelites, Allah chose us as the chosen people, as Israelites, we are Allah's chosen people because we are a race, an ethnicity that descended from Judah at Yahuda. And that line of descent makes us who we are. You, Muhammad, your message is limited to your, your, the Ummiyin, your Ummah, which meant specifically the Arab ethnicity. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes and says, it's as if saying, so what? Yes, Muhammad was sent to al-Ummiyin. I don't think it, 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 it has anything, it's not, the issue is not that they're illiterate people. The issue is that these are his immediate people. But Allah is telling them, Allah sends the message in the context of a people, but it is not so that the people can hug the message, but that the people can convey the message. And there is a hadith, for instance, it's, it's reported in, in many different, through different transmissions, different ways, with slight variations, where the Prophet is asked, who, who are the Ummiyin that Surah Al-Jumma uh, talks about? And it's interesting, I mean, because the response is, the Prophet says, Al-Ummiyin are the Arabs. But then the Hadith goes on and says, by God, if Allah had not chosen the Arabs, God would have chosen, verily God would have chosen the Persians. I mean, it's, it's an interesting, I, I don't want to vouch for the authenticity of these reports. But the point is, is that Allah invariably chooses a human being, and this human being is anchored in a cultural and ethnic and racial reality, but the charge then becomes that whoever receives the initial revelation must transcend that initial locality 
And that is precisely why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says, وَآخَرِينَ مِنْهُمْ لَمَّا يَلْحَقُوا بِهِمْ That their subsequent later generations, that the Ummiyin, those who initially received the revelation, will relate to those who come beyond the Ummiyin who initially received the revelation. And Allah then, look, الله, And in fact, that's the way Allah works. That's, that's the way Allah works Allah's blessings. Now, why is this important? Well, look, right after that, what does it say? مَثَلُ الَّذِينَ حُمِّلُوا التَّوْرَاتَ ثُمَّ لَمْ يَحْمِلُوهَا كَمَثَلِ الْحِمَارِ يَحْمِلُوا أَسْفَارًا Muhammad, as it translates, is the parable of those who were graced with the burden of the Torah and thereafter failed to bear this burden is that of an ass that carries a load of books. Then you start understanding the connection. Because all the tafsir don't tell you what the connection is. But the connection is precisely this. You, why did the Israelites, were, in, in the language, Why does it move on to tell them that you've betrayed the Torah and you've become like donkeys carrying books? The tafsir tell you, oh, it's well, it's because the Jews corrupted the, the Torah, it's because the Jews ignored the laws of the Torah. Actually, that's not right. It is precisely because the Jews turned the Torah into a message to the Israelites. They took Allah's universal message to humanity and turned it into an ethnicity. And by doing that, they betrayed the book, such a betrayal, that they emptied it of its meaning. So they became exactly like a donkey carrying a book. Now, there's a very interesting thing, though, that you find especially in the Sufi literature. When a donkey carries books, the only thing a donkey gains from carrying books is the exhaustion of labor. The exertion. Now, is there a sharaf? Is there an honor in carrying books and becoming exhausted because you carry books? Yes, there is. But that is a most basic honor. The far greater honor is to become 
be exhausted because you actually understand or comprehend or engage the books. The contrast is the exertion from carrying without meaning contrasted to exertion because of the meaning. Donkeys experience the exertion of carrying without meaning. So, then you pause for a second. In fact, Jews were, did honor their tradition through observing the Sabbath. Till now, religious Jews honor their tradition by observing the Sabbath. And could observe, and we know that the Jews of Medina were Karaite Jews, and Karaite Jews were quite often, um, uh, 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 what is the word I'm looking for? Meticulous about ritual. They would observe, because we, we actually, some of the texts of Kara Jews have survived. So we have some of the tradition of the Kara Jews of Medina. And we know that they were, were obsessed with rituals. But all their rituals, all their rituals were precisely about that, the rituals. They exercised ritual after ritual, but yet they employed usury. They considered the prohibitions that applies. You can't cheat a fellow Jew in trade, or you can't uh, hike up prices. You can't monopolize commodities when it comes to a fellow Jew, but you can do it to to a non-Jew. So the law that applies to Jews is different than the law that applies to non-Jews. And fundamentally, the rituals were about the relationship between Allah and Allah's chosen people. And the rituals were designed to honor the fact that we are God's chosen people. Then, do you see, now Surah Al-Jum'ah is starting to fall into a very different light. In fact, a revolutionary light. Because, what it's saying to them is, you have honored the law, but you completely missed the point of the law. You honor the law, but you've turned the law into a form of prejudice, into a form of elitism, into a chosen people as opposed to all others. This message, yes, it was sent to the Ummiyin, but it is intended to beyond the Ummiyin. While you, because you failed 
to understand that Judaism was not about the Israelites and Moses was not about the Israelites. Moses did not come to just save the Israelites from persecution. Moses came to uphold principles. And وحدانيةillah, that in saving the persecuted, Moses كَانَ يُنَزِّهُ اللَّهِ That Moses was doing tasbih. In every act you do, where you uphold the principle of the supremacy and the singularity and oneness of Allah, and that Allah doesn't play these games of ethnism, ethnocentrism, and racism, and picking one people for over other people. Allah is beyond that. That all is contrary to tasbih Allah. Because that you think Allah is like a you know a, a player in a in a in a soccer game or a racial game. You've become like donkeys carrying books. You yes, you exert yourself in ritual, but the ritual is meaningless. And that's why you have the honor of donkeys carrying books. But you don't have the honor of those who actually read books and comprehend books. Now, notice the other subtle contrast here. It starts out by saying, right? And Jews are saying, why would Allah send an illiterate prophet? And with the possible implication that that these are, although I you know I, I think this is the point is overemphasized that the Arabs were an illiterate people because umiyin just means your immediate your immediate folks, but there is also the secondary meaning of illiteracy. Now, how striking the contrast between those who can actually read books, but they actually become donkeys carrying books because they've corrupted the message, and those who could possibly be illiterate, but yet they honor the books because they actually carry forward the message of the book. So it is not just you know, a bunch of themes thrown together. As you, as you know, for so many, it is it is a coherent symphony. Coherent symphony. Then, okay. Then Allah comes with what sometimes is referred to in the tradition as mubahala, but this is not actually an incident of mubahala. Although some some in the in the in the traditions will say, oh, that there was a mubahala and that the the prophet told the Jews, well, if you really don't believe I am a prophet, why don't you wish for death? In other words, we we challenge you. May Allah strike dead whoever of us is lying, and that they refuse to accept the challenge, and then the Prophet ﷺ says, 
or if they would have accepted the charge, they would have been struck dead that second. I've I've investigated these traditions, and there's a lot of problems with with authenticity and not this incident. There's Mubala that did take place, but not over Surah Al-Jumma. Rather, the point here, which, so let's see how Muhammad Asa translates. Um, say, uh, okay, oh, you will follow the Jewish faith if you claim that you alone are close to God and to the exclusion of all other people, then you should be longing for this if what you say is true. Okay. What is that? No, this is, uh, sorry. قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ هَادُوا إِنْ زَعَمْتُمْ أَنَّكُمْ أَوْلِيَاءُ اللَّهِ إِنْ زَعَمْتُمْ أَنَّكُمْ أَوْلِيَاءُ لِلَّهِ مِنْ دُونِ النَّاسِ فَتَمَنَّوُ الْمَوْتِ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ صَادِقِينَ وَلَا يَتَمَنَّوْنَهُ أَبَدًا بِمَا قَدَّمَتْ أَيْدِيهِمْ وَاللَّهُ عَلِيمٌ بِالظَّالِمِينَ قُلْ إِنَّ الْمَوْتَ الَّذِي تَفُرُّونَ مِنْهُ فإنه ملاقيكم ثم تردون إلى تردون إلى عالم الغيب والشهادة فينبئكم بما كنتم تعملون. so why does Allah and it's a legitimate question why in this context after you said that they are like donkeys carrying books you come and say well الذين هادوا meaning instead of يهود Al-Lazina Hadu means those who became, those who later generations of Jews. It's a, it's a fine grammatical point, but anyway. Hadu means later generations of Jews. So all you who have come later and you insist that you have the special relationship with Allah, why would Allah says, okay, go ahead, if you are in fact, um, if this is in fact what you believe, wish for death. And then of course Allah comments on this and says, but in fact they will not wish for death with what they've done. This is about what your faith is about. Jews asserted that they are God's chosen people. God's chosen people. What? You're kidding. Really? Woodpecker? No, I thought it was a ghost. Um, if you believe that you, we, we hear banging, so like, like, yeah. Um, if you believe that you are God's chosen people, why this challenge about life and death? The theology of a chosen people was streamlined and targeted and directed 
at the idea that because we are God's chosen people, we are entitled to privileges on this earth where because we are God's chosen people, we trump the rights of others. Because we are God's chosen people, we can deal with usury when it, when it comes to dealing with non-Jews. The normal ethical or normal moral constraints that apply to trading with, um, with Jews do not apply when it comes to trading with Muslims. Now, when you understand the context, you understand precisely why. That caravan that arrived, this is typical of Quranic style, by the way, that caravan that arrived, what was going to happen if Muslims didn't leave the Juma to rush to buy? The Jewish tribes would have bought all the commodities, hiked the price, and why would they have done that? because they believe it is moral to do that, it is legal to do that because they're dealing with non-Jews. They wouldn't do it when dealing with fellow Jews. Hiking up prices, ihtikar, uh, monopolies, and hiking up prices is not allowed by Jewish law when dealing with a fellow Jew. But that type of thinking, which it took Jews centuries to reform, by the way, and it was through the influence of Maimonides, who clearly had his ethics from Islam, to overcome that, that sort of, um, anyway, that duplicity, that duality, and so Allah is telling them, really, if you truly believed that if you, if you even uh, directed your theology of being the chosen into being particularly, uh, into being about your relationship with Allah, not to, uh, not to harvest advantages for yourself on this earth, but to work towards a better position towards your God in the hereafter. You could say, you know, I am God's soldier, but that doesn't entitle me to any advantages on this earth. All that means is I have to be particularly vigilant in worship and prayer and doing the right thing, so I, my position with Allah in the hereafter will be better. But that's not the theology that the Israelites were adopting. They were saying, we are God's chosen people, so we're entitled to privileges on this earth, and Allah will never punish us because we have his chosen status. So Allah comes and says, the proof is how your attitude or how your moral attachment to life on this earth, if you truly, your faith is truly where it is, 
you would have no fear of death. You would, you would understand precisely the nature of this life as a transition and a test. Not as dar muqam, as they say. Not as the place of permanence residence. Not as a place for you to haggle for egotistic advantages. But as a transition and a test. And as Sufis would put it, and you would, the idea of liqa'ullah, the idea of meeting God, would be as welcome to you as accepting existing on this earth because it is God's will. Because it's God's will, I exist on this earth. But equally welcome to me is God's will that I leave this earth. That is, if you truly believe that you have a special relationship with Allah, now, th- that is precisely, now, and of course the reminder that re- your preferences aside, that, you know, death is inevitable. Now, note the incident now. We've already remember what we've learned from Surah Al-Baqarah and Surah Al-Umran. And I suspect that Surah Al-Jum'ah was revealed shortly after Al-Umran. But anyway, the people who stayed sitting at Juma, the 12 men and 7 women who didn't leave, what was their understanding of their relationship with Allah? you've reached a level of trust and being at peace with your Lord. A level of an understanding of your priorities that I can't imagine leaving the Prophet as the Quran says, وَتَرَكُوكَ قَائِمًا I can't imagine leaving him. The Prophet didn't abandon the khutbah to rush to get commodities for himself. I can't imagine leaving him to prefer either myself or my family or any other affairs because my priorities are straight. Those are the people and in fact, we have ample reports where Umar ibn al-Khattab, if, I think it's in, in Tafsir ibn Ajiba, if you are interested in these reports. He's asked about precisely this point, that 
tamannaw al-maut do you do you ever wish for death and his response is and again these reports are put in the and come from the way of Umar ibn Khattab or Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhu or or Ali ibn Abi Talib I mean regardless that they, do you ever and he said the point is I I neither wish nor not wish for death. It, it is, I endure earth as my test and I long to meet with my God. The people who remained sitting with the Prophet are the people who have an understanding of their relationship with Allah, the type of understanding that would wither away the fear of death. Now, notice here, when Allah talks about Those وَإِذَا رَأَوْ تِجَارَةً أَوْ لَهْوًا إِنْفَضُّوا إِلَيْهَا وَتَرَكُوكَ قَائِمًا Let's see how Allah does it. Translate. And, yeah. Or if I, yet, it does happen that when people become aware of an occasion of worldly gain or a passing delight, they rush headlong towards it. And leave you standing. And the, the verb form here is fascinating because it is as if Allah is commenting on these on the state of affairs of human beings that an event happened, but the, the verb doesn't say they did this. It comments about what people tend to do grammatically that as if it is a continuing act rather than an act that happened in the past. So human beings, yet human beings, when they see ilahu aw tajara it a a material gain, an opportunity for material gain, they leave you standing. And of course, then Allah comments, well, what Allah has for you is better than this. But when you keep in mind that the event that Allah is talking about is the event that we explained How do I put this? That the meaning of these ayat far transcends the historical event itself to every situation in which the, the Prophet was caught was standing giving a khutbah, right? What after the death of the Prophet, ﷺ, symbolically, 
the the koim, the standing, is the truth of this message. Anything that embodies the truth of Islam is what is koim, is what remains standing. Now, human beings, however, under the guise of various excuses of need and under the reality of various compulsions of need, so it's not nearly, it doesn't have to be an excuse, but human beings will often, because needs arise, because there are practical things like functionality, practicality, right? Opportunity, will abandon the qa'im, will abandon the moral, the ethic that remains standing. But this is precisely what the Israelites did. Once you accept that practicality, functionality, can trump religious commitment and principle, the slippery slope will in fact lead you to the point where you become like donkeys carrying books. Religion weighs you down, exerts you, it tires you, but you gain nothing from it. Allah gave you, as Allah says in Surah Al-Jum'ah, right? Allah gave you a kitab wal-hikmah, the book and hikmah. And of course, some of the tafsir tell you hikmah is the sunnah of the Prophet. That's very pedantic, understanding it this way. Kitab is the revelation, which includes the book and the sunnah. It's all revelation. Well, hikmah is wisdom. Like understanding Surah Al-Jum'ah, that's hikmah. Like understanding the, the wisdom behind it. And if the revelation becomes nothing but a set of performative rituals or religion itself becomes nothing than a, a, a form of power dynamics or a form of claiming privilege for a race, for a class, for whatever, it becomes precisely like donkeys carrying books. It weighs them down, it tires them out, but they gain no hikmah from it, they gain nothing from it. Now, let me just try to make sure I don't forget anything. Oh, yeah. Okay. As it says that in say مثل الذي يقرأ القرآن ويتلوه ولا يتدبر معانيه أو يقرأ أو أو يقدر العلم or يقرأ sorry or أو أو يقرأ العلم ولا يعمل به كمثل الحمار يحمل أسفار that 
those who study, those who recite the Quran, and there are plenty of Muslims who recite the Quran but don't understand it. Don't study and reflect upon the meaning of the Quran. It's, they become like donkeys carrying books, right? The other thing is, and this is reported widely, that when asked about the attitude towards death, death and life, that حُبُّ الْبَقَاءَ عَلَى قَيْدِ الْحَيَاءَ لِلْتَرَقِّ وَالْتَوْسِعَةَ فِي الْمَعْرِفَةَ مَحْمُودٌ وَغَيْرُهُ مَزْمُومٌ If the reason that you want to live is because you want to elevate yourself and increase your knowledge, that's actually praiseworthy. But if you want to live because you want to continue just living, i.e. consuming, then the natural instinct of, well, I exist, so I want to continue existing, then there's no moral purpose to that. Life itself for you becomes like a, again, a donkey carrying books, that you are saddled by life but there's no meaning in life. You carry life like a donkey carrying books. So, now, notice when it says, so this is uh, 10, let's see how Muhammad Asa translates it. Um, it says, and when prayer is ended, disperse freely on earth and seek to obtain something of God's bounty. But remember God often so that you might attain to a happy state. The main thing is that the Prophet ﷺ says, when, when, when the prayer is done and you disperse on earth, in a whole, in a set of traditions, the Prophet says, لَيْسَ لِطَلَبِ الدُّنْيَا وَلَكِنْ لِعِيَادَةِ الْمَرِيدِ أَوْ حُضُورِ جَنَازَةِ Meaning that after Jum'ah, when Allah says disperse, and the Prophet comments on this by saying what is intended in behind this is not that so you can just go and uh, covet dunya, that you can go and seek after life in dunya, but that what, what Allah prefers that you do right after Jum'ah is to visit the sick, to attend a funeral, meaning that you, you, you console people in, in mourning, or ziyarat akhin fillah, or to even just visit a fellow Muslim. This idea of that Jum'ah is a day for dhikrillah wa dhikr 
وذكر أخواتك في الله وإخوانك في الله that it is ذكر الله and to remember your brethren and your sisters in Allah Subhanallah this social ethic used to exist in the Islamic civilization for centuries we have tons of evidence that Jumu'ah was not necessarily seen as a day of rest by Muslims. And in fact, that doesn't come until colonialism. Because Muslims, contrary to the Jews considered Saturday the Sabbath. Christians considered Sunday a day of rest. Muslims made it a point to say Jumu'ah was not a day of rest. Initially, when Jumu'ah was declared to be day off, by colonial powers, when, when colonialism entered Muslim lands, the way they convinced Muslims was in, in the Napoleonic Code, when they said that Jumu'ah would be day off for Muslims. So a lot of the muftis of Egypt protested. Why is it a day off? Why is the government dictating it's a day off? And the French said, it, well, it's so you can do what your prophet told you, visit your fellow Muslims. And then the Sheikh of Azhar said, oh, okay, well, okay, so we, we'll, we'll pray Jumu'ah, and then Muslims will visit one another. Of course, that's completely forgotten. So now, you know, most Muslims will, if they go to Jumu'ah prayer, they think, well, after Jumu'ah, I just watch TV or watch soccer or whatever they watch. But the idea that Jumu'ah is actually, you're under a, the prayer comes from Allah, but the Prophet ﷺ exhorted you to make an extra effort to console and visit and to, 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 to create the bonds of the Muslim Ummah together. Um, it's something lost, but it is worth obviously mentioning. But then, so, now let's take a step back. So, Jumu'ah is precisely as the word means. The day where people come together. And it is the commitment to Jum'ah itself as, I mean, some of the, the, the um, that if you must take Jum'ah seriously enough, not just in the portion of the Salah, that the, and that is why often in the Islamic tradition you find numerous discourses about that the Khatib or the Imam at Jum'ah must be someone that is and this was, by the way, it must be someone that is liked or valued or highly revered by the community. This was in direct response to the attempt by the state to appoint khatibs. So Muslim fuqaha, who were braver than the fuqaha of today, pushed back by the state and said, well, no, that doesn't work for you to appoint the khatibs because the khatib must be someone who is revered. Why revered? Consider if Allah is telling us 
that notice the, the Al-Qa'im was at the time of the Prophet the Prophet but after the Prophet the, the Qa'im Bijum'ah the person who is delivering this khutbah this khutbah before prayer or even if you say if among the like the early practice of if, if it's true after prayer but regardless it's such a serious event it's such a serious thing that we must give it the worst give it in sufficient priority to trump the practical affairs of dunya as we saw so much so that you could be experiencing hardship and you know that you are that you know the the hyenas are ready to 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 pounce on the caravan and that will put you at an economic disadvantage but you have the discipline to say no the khutbah takes priority so then i ask you how important must the khutbah be because if allah is telling us obviously when the prophet ﷺ speaks there's nothing more important but allah put us in this position we we inherit the pulpit of the prophet we inherit it so how important must the khutbah be that the 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 the, the amana of this of this khutbah that is delivered to a congregation I read this in one of the tafsirah. I don't remember which. Maybe the, one of the computer people, like Rami, will figure it. I I don't know. It said that if the khatib, I don't I forgot how he put it, but something to the effect that if the khatib of a congregation is unintelligent, ahmak the congregation will become hamka. If the khatib of a congregation is a alim, it will elevate the congregation to become ulama. So, Surah Al-Jum'ah is like a symphony of an ethical message. Allah commands you to do a ritual. Allah commands you to do a ritual. But don't you dare turn your ritual into something like those who carry books, the donkeys who carry books have made it. Don't you dare turn your ritual into something meaningless. Don't you dare turn your ritual into something full of prejudice and bigotry. Don't turn it, don't you dare make your ritual into something about you rather than about Allah and the, the a, a ala deen, that what this religion is about. Don't you dare turn your religion it, itself like Jews have done into a religion about ethnicity. 
or culture or race. This is nothing short of the critical importance of life and death itself. Because if in understanding and embracing your faith, your hearts remain, remain wedded to dunya, In fact, your religion is made, you adapt your religion to dunya. That as someone, I forgot, it, it was a, one of my, one of the shiuch, I heard him say, um, it's either, it's either you do the sai to dhikrillah, or, or you do the sai lil islam, or you make Islam do the side for you. It's either you pursue Islam or what you end up doing is you make Islam pursue you. So at the same time that Allah tells us the critical importance of ritual, Allah juxtaposes that powerful image of when a ritual becomes a donkey carrying box. In one page and a half, Allah delivered us, delivered the message, the warning. It is astoundingly beautiful and brilliant. And that's Surah Al-Jumah. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. It's Maghrib now, right? No? Oh, wow. Is it? Is it 8.30 something? Oh, I, I, I forgot one thing. Maybe that will take us to Maghrib, as I say. Now, you read all in, in books of fiqh time and time again, they'll tell you that Jum'ah is mandatory. Well, some some schools, for some reason, well, it's a long story. Anyway, those who said Jum'ah is sunnah mu'akkada, those who, but let's take, uh, we, we, we can get into that in Q&A if you want, but that Jum'ah is mandatory upon all Muslim men, but it is not mandatory upon the Imra'ah or Sabi wal Mamluk. It is not mandatory upon women, children, and slaves. This reflects not the authentic doctrine within the Islamic tradition, but reflects the contextual understanding of the fuqaha who would normally accept women, slaves, and children from all significant public duties. In my view, there is absolutely no justification, and let me be very clear about this, absolutely no defense, no justification for accepting women. Slaves are, I mean, 
Because anyone that tells me, we, yeah, women have an exception not to attend Juma if they don't want, then you have to say, and slaves. So if you're going to justify an exception for women, justify the exception for slaves. If you can't justify the exception for slaves, then you can't justify the exception for women. Because in the, in, in the fiqh, it's hand in hand. And since I don't accept the exception for slaves, I don't accept the exception for women. Muslim women across the Muslim world, thanks to centuries of corruption, believe that Muslim women are excluded from... It is absolutely contrary to everything we know about the practice of the Prophet in the Medina period. And even the reports that says seven women didn't leave and 12 men and seven women men out of their way went out of their way to chip away at the number of women so then you get reports say no they weren't seven there were five no they weren't five there were three no they weren't three there were one and then eventually a report that says no there were there were no women who who you know all the women left to to go after the caravan i mean anyway um because that issue, I mean, it, it, I understand the, the way mosques are built are, 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 don't accommodate women. And they make it a point to basically send a message that women are not welcome. But think of the original mosque in Mecca and Medina. Think of the history of mosques like Masjid al-Hussein in Egypt or Masjid al-Sayyidah Zainab in Cairo. This is the architecture of mosques and the exclusion of women in very limited, constrained compartments is, is a product of a doctrinal corruption in itself. In my view, Right there is an example of al-Himari Ahmed al-Asfara. Because you've, you've already corrupted the message, uh, the critical message and critical role of what Jum'ah was and is in the life of Muslims. Okay, now it's over. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Thank you so much, Sheikh. This was incredible, um, as always. Um, it's always exciting when what we hear here is not, I mean, it's so counter to what um, is typically understood about a surah. Um, I think that is really truly the gift because um, when we understand and you always make it so powerful by taking us through the context and understanding what was happening and again, breaking down this sort of, you know, preconceived notion that the people around the prophet were somehow you know all perfect that they weren't human beings necessarily um, you put us in that particular situation you know we could imagine ourselves sitting in a drama hearing the the drums for the caravan and thinking oh my god I gotta go I got I mean this is like a very classic situation and if I'm truly honest with myself I don't know if I would have stayed I would have thought if I don't get this food for my family, then I, we are going to suffer and God will understand. This is so natural. Um, and so it really then drives home the point 
that is made in Sora Drama, and so it just completely turns on its head. You know, like w when I thought, okay, we're covering Drama, you sort of feel like, okay, why do we get together? You know, this is going to be about a Friday gathering, but that's really not at all what this was about. So this is extremely valuable and extremely pertinent, and then once again brings it, you know, drives it back home to this is a message for us today and how we think about the world, how we set our priorities. Because um, there are many times where I can, if I'm honest, it's like, okay, God will understand. I need to go do X, Y, and Z. Um, so alhamdulillah, thank you so much for, again, the continuing gift of making the Quran relevant to our lives. Um, and this, again, also underscores, I mean, I know that I become like this, um, you know, record of like saying by the prophet's pulpit and whatever, but you know, just to say we named the book The Prophet's Pulpit exactly because of what you have taught us, that if you are going to step foot on the prophet's pulpit, you are stepping foot um, and representing the message of the prophet and that this has to be what you're sharing. You have a trust between, you know, the people that are listening to you, that you are sharing something that is relevant, the most relevant to their lives, um, and that you are giving something that is far beyond common knowledge. Um, and so this collection of, um, of you know, Sheikh's uh, khutbahs um, edited by Joe to be just to sing off the page where you literally hear Sheikh's voice, but you can read it and really feel it in your heart. These are a collection of elevated khutbahs that give you that sense of, okay, you know, I'm not, what am I supposed to do? How do I live? How do I reach for social justice? It's, it's an empowerment in a book. Um, and so this is like perfect timing, I think, um, you know, a beautiful nexus between what we learned today and again, you know, the, the release of the Prophet's pulpit. And so, um, alhamdulillah, like we are used to khutbahs being irrelevant and boring and painful. And this just gives us a more insight into, um, into God's message. So thank you so much. Um, so I think what we should probably do is take a break now. It's now probably Maghrib or close. Um, and then give people a chance if you have questions, go ahead and send them through the chat and then uh, we'll break for prayer and come back and do Q&A. So thank you, thank you so much. Alhamdulillah. Let's turn this on. Stay tuned. <laughs> we'll be Don't go away. In five minutes, divine minutes. Ten minutes. <laughs> ten. No. It's our version of ten minutes. <laughs> Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah, we're back um, for Q&A. Uh, if you have any questions, please send them through the chat. Um, I just wanted to remind people, we are still actually doing the adopt a surah. It's been wonderful. We have 23 surahs still that have yet to be adopted, and Surah um, Al-Jummah is actually one of them. Um, and also, uh, among the ones we've done recently, Surah Al-Munafikun is also available. Um, we have some incredible surahs, actually, that um, are, uh, are able to be adopted and sponsored um, as you know we're working hard to um, turn all of this amazing content into an actual multi-volume work um, inshallah it's a long process it's going to take a lot of work uh, a lot of um, you know hands on deck um, but inshallah it's going to be amazing because this content just has to be shared with the world and it's it's transformative as you know um, I wanted to start by asking is there a vicar for this chapter Oh, uh, uh, I should have told you that. Uh, 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 no, go, go ahead and ask me the, uh, what's the, 
Well, my, my next question is if you would share with us again your personal journey yeah. with this surah and... Yeah. Um, the dhikr uh, um, is... Uh, this is uh, number... Uh, the Ahma number five, the Ahmari Ahmed Wasfara, because of my obsession was trying to understand what this is about, was the was zikr for it. Um, although I, I, I would be not be surprised if someone else came and said, no, there's another ayah, because I, I couldn't tell if this was a zikr because this is the, what, the, the, the heart and soul the spiritual heart and soul of the surah or was because of my obsession was that image. But anyway, that number five. Okay. And, and just, and for people who are new to, like when I ask the question, what's the, the significance, what's the dhikr? Why, why uh, do we identify uh, All, all the of these, uh, so I mean, uh, you know, the dhikr is not, this is, you you obviously, in, in studying the surah, there, I spent a great deal of time just supplicating, uh, and I would use an ayah or sometimes two, two, uh, where I would just, my dhikr would be, I would keep repeating the ayah as I am praying to Allah to, to inspire me, to, to help me put the, all the material together. So it, I would do my due diligence in research, but, um, but then after the due diligence comes the dhikr. And I think it, it is, it, that doesn't mean, it, it just means that this is, I, I think that any, any Muslim scholar, whatever they do, before they, they venture an opinion about what God intends by anything, they should spend a great deal of time in dhikr and where they plead and beg with Allah to, um, to at least if it's either make it that to inspire them with what is what with what is correct and what is true, or to excuse them for not reaching what is correct and what is true. Yeah, so that, that's the, the, uh, oh. the, the question is just to share with us as always, like yeah. your journey with the Surah. Surah al-Jumma'ah, I mean, the, um, first, I, Surah al-Jumma'ah, I was confused by how Surah, like Surah al-Jumma'ah, could be uh, in the late Meccan period, as I kept reading in so many sources. Um, it, it does, it, for, for the, we know that by the eighth or the seventh Hijrah, the congregation, the, the number of people attending Jumma'ah was, kept getting bigger and bigger. So the idea that 
a, a congregation of hundreds of people would all leave and leave the prophet sitting with 12 people, 12 men and seven women, seemed highly implausible to me. Um, the, the second, um, things economically got better in Medina uh, after the Battle of Al-Khandaq, uh, not worse. So that also bothered me, that because it, report after report, it tells you that there were, this was a time of financial crisis in Medina, and that's the reason people got up. So that bothered me as well. Uh, third, Juma played such a critical role. I mean, Juma, and often people took the importance of Juma for granted at the time of the Prophet, but it is after his death. Uh, Abu Bakr uh, explained the rationale for Hurub al-Ridda and his decision to, uh, for, to, and his continuing justification for engaging in these battles in, uh, in Juma. Omar ibn al-Khattab uh, explained many of his austerity measures, many of his fiqhi ishtihads, because he had, his opinion, Omar was a mushtahad. He explained many of these issues at Khutab al-Jum'ah. Um, interestingly, the, period, the Uthman period, uh, we have less transmissions about Khutab al-Jum'ah at the time of uh, Uthman. Uh, but Imam Ali's Khutab uh, were a piece of art. I mean, it, 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 they were, and then we also know that it, the Khutab al-Shuma was so important that the first thing that the Umayyads targeted when they wanted to fight the supporters of Imam Ali were Khutab al-Shuma. And so it, it, this was something that was anchored in the Muslim consciousness uh, very early on. So how could it be that we get the Quranic revelation uh, so late? So th this was, you know, an, a central issue. But then the other thing that uh, Surah Al-Juma, uh, and I didn't find the tafsir necessarily helpful in this, but is what Al-Ummiyin, you know, talks about who the Prophet was sent to, and then Jews, uh, uh, like donkeys, become becoming like donkeys carrying books. And of course, I would, you'd read in a lot of tafsir that this doesn't just, intended by this expression is not just the Israelites, but us that everything the Quran says about the Israelites is not just, it's about us. So Allah is telling us effectively, this is not what you should be. And then Jum'ah. And so, and my, my 
by then I had done so many of the Surah of the Quran that I, because I was um, often, I mean, Surah Al-Jumma'ah actually was quite late in the process. Uh, that I, um, I actually handled Surah Al-Jumma'ah. Let's see if I, if I have the record of that. Uh, wait. Mm. Yeah, I, my, I researched Surah Al-Jumma'ah after um, Al-Tahreem, after Al-Hajj, after Al-Nur. Um, I've near to nearly towards the very end. So, um, I, I knew that there had to be a unity, a, a coherent unity in the message. Um, but the tafsir were not helpful in explaining that. And and Surah Al-Jumma, I have to say, after you struggle with all, because Surah Al-Jumma has n numerous conflicting reports about the specifics and details. Like, for instance, uh, who established the first Jumma, you know, the, um, things like that. Um, then the the once you delve into the, the sectarian debates about who left, who got up and went to, I mean, and you get you, these sectarian debates could could swallow you if um, because they're they're literally endless. But anyway, um, so Surat al-Jumma is a really good example where the dhikr is when. Once, once it, once the the flash came of I I could literally see the all the, the coherent parts of the surah as if as if in a in a picture in front of me as if like I, I just it, it's like as if I could hear the symphony of the surah in my mind, and once I I I, I got that, then I went back and over all the research and deepened the research and it all clicked. Mm -hmm. Everything fit into place. Um, even the arguments about, you know, I, because the Tafasir don't tell you, they, 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 they don't mention this thing about um, uh, the, um, you find from like the Musannafat, the narratives about what the anxiety over the Jewish tribes going to the caravan, hogging up all the goods, and hiking up the prices, and then, uh, and then you can then you you research particularly the narratives, uh, the various narratives about the 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 theological justifications. Uh, for the Jewish tribes, when Muslims would tell them, you know, this is unfair. How could you, you, how could you, you know, especially usury or exploit the prices and things like that, and their their attitude were, were, well, you're not you're not covered by our laws. Mm. But then it strikes you that Allah knew that. Obviously, I mean, Allah knew that this is going to become a moral issue 
for Muslims because it is Muslims themselves that will reach a point where they say, well, you know, do the ethical parameters constrain us in dealing with fellow Muslims or do they actually apply universally? And um, then, then, then that, that critical image of the donkey carrying books, and then you realize that donkey carrying books um, are so many humans in so many situations. We just are donkey carrying books quite, quite often. Even when, like, I, I can imagine in, in my view, like, many academics who are donkeys carrying books. I mean, they think they, they understand these books, but they're donkeys because they, the, the books don't play any moral role. Um, it, the, the books are basically like a job. If, like a profession, like you perform. Um, it's just the way you make money. It's not about anything beyond that. It's like the, don the poor donkey who carries books just so they can be fed by their owner at the end. You know, it's not about what's, what's in the books, it's about the job. And, and that's terrifying. When you, when you, you know, when I think of, um, with all due respect, a lot of the shiuch um, at Azhar are donkey car donkeys carrying books. Um, it has become a profession. You know, a way that they make money, uh, the way, way they earn living, not about any moral anything, or and 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 that's the thing. Allah is is at the same time that Allah is telling us. Ritual matters. I mean, congregate something as as ritualistic as congregational, but what matters even more is the meaning within it. And so, at the same time that I'm telling you, don't you dare cut corners when it comes to ritual. I am telling you, don't you also dare become like donkeys carrying books, because then it all falls apart. Um. And then once, once, once you understand that, you can never get it out of your brain. Then it becomes a part of your soul. Um, yeah. Alhamdulillah, thank you. Anybody want to start with a question? Okay, come on up, Joe. Okay, this is actually Rami's question, so, because Rami couldn't come in person, so he, It is the essence, yes, quite true. And this is Rami's question. Um, the metaphor, so the metaphor of a donkey can the book is naql, a very kind of literal image, entirely contrary to kitab or hikmah. Mm -hmm. So could this mean that naql without aql is a form of taklid ayat ida, as it says in verse 5? Oh. And then following that, when the, when Surah then says, Could that be the fadl? The fadl is not that the Prophet was Arab sent to Arabs, but the fadl is the hikmah, the hikmah itself. Hikmah 
which allows you to keep revelation alive and loving mm -hmm. and allow you to avoid being opportunistic, which was ritualize it, memorialize it. It's the hikmah that stops you being the donkey carrying the book. Um, yeah. No, uh, yeah. Uh, the, Can you the, repeat that? Huh? Can you repeat? Oh, the, uh, the, um, there are two, sort of two points. Uh, well, first, Joe was saying that attendance at Jum'ah all over the Muslim world is so perfunctory that it actually quite literally is like donkey ca donkeys carrying books because it's it's ritual that we engage in often without any meaning or it has become soulless and that's quite true um and then rami's question at two points whether um the um Oh, yeah, that when when uh, when knuckle is transmission. That if if knuckle is mindless. So in other words, if we just transmit traditions without understanding or comprehension, is this? One is this a form of takzib? Is this like a, a form of? Uh, um, it's not disbelieving God, but giving the lie to God's message. And then the second point is that when Allah mentions that that giving us the book and the hikmah is a bounty from Allah. It's a fadl from Allah that it is it, like a blessing from Allah. Um, there are those that said, you know, the, 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 the kitab is obviously the Quran, and then the hikmah is the sunnah. And I, and I said that that's, that's, in my opinion, that's clearly wrong. The, the, the kitab is revelation, whether it's Quran or sunnah. And the hikmah is the intellect and I do I, I absolutely believe that um, it, it is the fadl I mean but like all bounties and all blessings that we receive from Allah it could be either met with giving things giving it its due or juhud and juhud is when Jahud, uh, when when you deny the, the the gift, so if Allah gives you the intellect, and you fail to use the intellect, and you, you know, pickle your intellect and make it into a showpiece, or not even a showpiece, but as in often what has happened to Islamic sciences generally, where the the intellect just becomes a, a exercise in memory, how how much you memorize, but no analytical powers whatsoever. Um, no no willingness to even understand the development of knowledge. So, I mean, remarkably, you'll find Muslims today who will deal with history as if our knowledge of historical methodology stopped developing in... I don't know, the 3rd century Hijra or the 4th Hijra. Um, there are complete, so many Muslims who, 
deal with hadith and, and sira have never read a book in historiography, which to me, it blows my mind. Or someone who says, I'm a faqih, I'm a jurist, but they've never read a book in jurisprudential theory or in law and society or in, in moderate, modern legal systems. Uh, of course, that, that to me, that is juhud. That is the height of juhud because all of it is Allah's bounty. I mean, the intelligent Einstein's intellect was Allah's bounty. Yeah, it's Einstein, but, but it's Allah. Einstein was just the vehicle for the intellect. The, 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 um, and, you know, when you... Um, who was it that... that, that uh, no, that was Tarek. Uh, Tarek was showing me that commentator um, who was commenting about uh, racism. His name is... Is Tarek there? Mm -hmm. Azim or um, the comedian guy? Mahar? Yeah, Mahar. Mahar Zain? Mahar Zain? No, no, not no. Mahar uh, something. Uh, the Palestinian uh, guy. Ahmed Zahir. Yeah. Ahmed Zahir. Ahmed Zahir. Ahmed Zahir. Ahmed Zahir. Ahmed Zahir. Ahmed Zahir. And Amr Zahir was going through all the, like, it was mentioning all the, the things that Muslims invented. And it's, it's remarkable. I mean, it is not possible that you have a civilization that, that have even would have thought through something like algebra or, you know, thought through the science of optics if their systems of knowledge relied on naql and if they hadn't kept up with the development of, of, of systems of knowledge from one century to another. Um, but somehow, the, all of that has... Uh, now, مسألة التقذيب, giving the lie to God's message. If Allah entrusts you with a religion, and the way you use this religion, or the way you inherit this religion, leads people leads people to not believe this religion. Isn't that takzib lillah? I mean, you've become the vehicle by, for, by which people say, this is not the truth. And it's not because of what this religion is, but because of what the way you've handled this religion. Um, I mean, subhanAllah, all the warnings in the Qur'an, throughout the Qur'an, not to follow in the footsteps of those who've corrupted their faith. And we've, I think, fallen in exactly the same mistake. It is as if, well, these are for the Israelites, as if there's something ethnic about their mistake. That has nothing to do with their ethnicity or their race or whatever. No, it's not about the Israelites. It's about us. It is, you know, when you when we ended up replicating every mistake again, 
Yeah, that's takzib. That's takzib. And inkar al-fadl, it's both. Actually, I'm going to follow up that with a question that I received um, that is exactly to this point. Um, it was an email, Assalamualaikum, uh, Grace and Professor. My question is this, what advice can you give to parents, perhaps especially converts to Islam, or those Muslims newly returned to their faith who have through their ignorant application and misunderstanding of Islam, through a fearful need to control, have hurt and discouraged their children to the extent that the same children as young adults want next to nothing to do with Islam. And thank you for your tireless work. I'm so grateful. I cannot overstate how you have helped, enlightened, informed, and matured my faith. May Allah reward you. Um, yeah, you know, um, um, some of the most heartwarming moments. I mean, I, I've, I've, um, for for health reasons and for reasons that uh, uh, just you know what's left of one's life and what what you aspire to accomplish before you leave this world. Um, I I've um, forced to do not want to keep teaching. Um, but there is something about teaching that is extremely rewarding. And the mo some of the most rewarding things about what I do is when I encounter these Muslim students in law school uh, who, by the time they get to law school, um, they just they they want nothing to do with their with their religion, and Subhanallah, what my what I find is that when it it doesn't take much to to get them reinterested when they find that they that they they encounter someone who could be a professor, could, you know, be a law professor, um, and who is, who is quite outspoken about uh, his convictions and his faith. And, you know, I often get into the, these discussions with them and um, Sometimes, I mean, for the parents at this point, the 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 it's it's really hard to to calm children down at the in when you reach this point to even listen to you or to take or to open up a new page or to start a new page. But the only thing that you can often do is to direct them towards or to strongly suggest or to encourage them to try to uh, listen to to any figure that they would look up to often the the um the, the what becomes embedded in their psyche is that it is impossible to be reasonable and to be Muslim at the same time, or it is impossible to be sophisticated or well-read 
or um, and to be Muslim at the same time. And to, to try to challenge that assumption without challenging it directly um is uh, what you what you um what you really aspire to i mean or that that's what you should shoot for um i i mean for parent by parents lecturing or or you know, sometimes, but this of course depends on the situation. Sometimes, if you are, if you become a trusted friend, but that's fraught, of course, with issues because a lot of times they're willing to to be to take you on as a friend as long as long as you don't discuss religion with them. They they sort of become. You know, the, the minute you mention anything about religion, then the the entire past is, and. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts? Um, I guess I, I would just say that, um, I mean, I agree that it's uh, people are probably reacting to something that just seems irrational, and so they have to see examples. Um, and just to choose wisely who you have speak to the youth, because you don't want to create the opposite reaction. And, and just to, to pray that, um, Allah will guide their journey so that when they're open, that they will see the right thing, that will, something will strike them to bring them back. And to find a suli, of course, because <laughs> I think what we do here is appeals to, to you know, the intellect and the heart um, and the soul. And when you hear truth, that, that that has its own power. So did you have another question? Okay. It's a really basic one. So, um, for ten, 12 years in Medina, and the Prophet was giving the khutbah presumably every week, that's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds yeah. of khutbah, maybe even low thousands. Like, do we have, they all preserved? Do we have them? No, the, the, most of the khutbahs were not preserved. We have, on occasions when there was a, a major historical event, then we have a narration where it is clear that someone had made, or a number of people had had, had remembered the, with variations and transmissions that you always get, but had remembered the, the core of the khutbah. But I mean, that that is, um, 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 yeah, I mean, uh, you, um, that, that's really painful because, you know, you, you imagine if this was a illiterate, if at the time it was a illiterate culture where people were actually writing down everything, all the khutab of the prophet, Salam. Uh, but I mean, ultimately, you have to just accept that this was part of Allah's will, and maybe 
maybe it was necessary so that what the, what the Quran chooses to memorize is what's relevant and important, and that's what we should focus on. Uh, and what the, what the Quran does not integrate and mention, then perhaps, you know, Allah did not intend it to, to survive. It, it just from from the uh, uh, the historical perspective, you just it it yeah it. But you know, Subhanallah, when today, when you think of how much we can learn from archaeology. And you think that till the Ottoman period, a lot of these archaeological sites had survived and that they were all destroyed since World War I, which is relatively a short period of time. And in fact, the vast majority after World War II, not even World War II, you know. Uh, and that the vast majority were destroyed in the 60s and 70s. And you think of how much we could have learned from the archaeology of Mecca and Medina, it really blows your mind. Because, um, I mean, and it's clear that, again, it, it, and this is where an example of when you don't learn from assuming good faith, assuming good faith, uh, that those people obviously had no clue what the, the archaeological methods had become and how much archaeology could have allowed us to learn and understand and, 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 and how much we could have understand the context of the Quran from just a systematic study of the archaeology of Mecca and Medina. And when, when, when you think that all of that has been just wiped out, it is no less tragic, if not even more tragic, than the loss of the Prophet's khutb. Okay, anybody else? Any questions? Um, I have one from Brian on the interactive group. Salam alaikum, Brian. Um, verses 2 and 3 seem to relate the aims and purposes of the khutbah. Why does Allah in verse 2 distinguish between conveying the ayat and teaching the book? Does this inform us further about the purposes of the khutbah? Yeah. This is a very good question. Um, so, هو الذي بعث في الأميين رسولا منهم رسولا منهم يتلو عليهم آياته ويذكيهم ويعلمهم الكتاب والحكمة. So there is actually some of the tafsir. Well, uh, first uh, uh, I should say for the يتلو عليهم آياته. So recite. The ayat, so, and you zakihim purify them. and teach them the book, and hikmah, and and wisdom. Or hikmah is is wisdom. It could be just like the teaching of knowledge itself. 
Um, so, Tilawat al-Ayat, so many of the tafsir say that that the Prophet because the Prophet didn't read so it, it, Allah would have said read to them Ayatullah but Tilawat recite literally recite to them Ayatullah which also which means that these ayat are not the prophets but simply the, the prophet is performing the role of reciting uh, ayatullah and then but beyond, beyond the tilawa and I'll, I'll, uh, to answer Brian's in, in a second so beyond the tilawa then the tazkiyah which the path to purification and the teaching of the further things, the book itself, which which is distinguished distinguished from Tilawat al-Ayat, because teaching the book is also teaching the dynamic and the method of tadabbur al-ayat, reflecting and thinking and reasoning upon the ayat, which in itself is the heart of hikmah. So from this, that the most basic, like, uh, uh, um, uh, form uh, formalistic level is that every Jum'ah, there must be there must be, and the, the you know, you get into the fiqh books, into whether um, you must recite in, a khutbah, in the first khutbah an ayah, at least one ayah, a minimum of one ayah, or in the second khutbah, a minimum of one ayah, or is enough to recite a minimum of one ayah in the both khutbahs, or must it must be a minimum of one surah. They get into all the, you know, as, as books of fiqh often usually, usually do. But then that, but the Tazkiyah and the teaching of the book, here is where you, there is, so some said, well, you must also counsel people to remember Allah and purify themselves. And, but I think Brian is right in that, obviously it is not just a formalistic process of saying an ayah and then counsel people to purify themselves, and then counsel people reflect on God's book, and then I sit down. But to actually perform these roles, because we the, the prophet who in, in, in again the image of Tarkuka Qa'iman, that the the, the the Prophet, when he, when he stands in the role of the of the of the educator, uh, reciting the verses, but guiding people to purifying their souls, getting their priorities straight, learning how to turn this book into a living constitution. To, to turn this book from 
rituals that are meaningless in and of themselves unless they serve an entire, they serve israat mustaqim, they serve a moral path. The challenge of the khutbah is, is no less than that. You must go beyond tilawat al-ayah to simply recite the ayah, to taking on the challenge of giving serious thought in what you communicate to people as to what is needed for human beings to elevate irtaqa, to human, human beings to elevate or your congregation to elevate and to purify, to evolve, to progress, to become from one year to the other, from one day to the other, from one month to the other, from one year to the other, a closer to the beauty that is Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And to marshal the Quran as a living ethical path and constitution in their life. That's not, regardless of how many times you, you speak abstractions about the Quran, unless you walk, unless you give people an examples of, of applied ethics, applied morality, People will not, it's like the difference, someone walks in and gives a lecture in anatomy, describes the human body perfectly, and expects, that's all they do, and expects the students to go out and become doctors. Just because you know the human body perfectly doesn't mean that you're going to be able to train anyone. Unless your teachers teach you how to take this, you know, physiological knowledge and turn it into an applied science of treating human beings, an experiential science, you know, it's the same thing. The reason we have in, in law school experiential programs is because I could stand up and I could lecture about the theory, you know, contracts theory. But that doesn't qualify anyone to handle a contract unless people, unless students have the, exper the experiential education into how to actually handle a contract, how to actually read a contract, or how to take the desires of two negotiating parties and turn these desires into an actual contract, written contract. Theory can only progress to a point. And so I completely agree with Brian in the sense that this is the challenge that the khatib has. You must become like that teacher that provides experiential knowledge. How the message of Allah translates in its engagement with real life into actual choices about priorities and that these priorities, how they negotiate, 
the ethical parameters that Allah gives us, the marching orders in our lives that Allah gives us, and how doing so will always elevate us, the scared nafs, and bring us closer to Allah. And that is why our khutab, our, you know, make people fall asleep. Because it's always just a description of anatomy, nothing beyond. How many times can you be told, oh, you know, you, you, you hear the same hadith, the same story from Sirah that teaches you about, I don't know, Ithar or Ihsan or Sadq or whatever. But, okay, I've heard it a million times. But unless I can look up to this person who's given the khutbah as someone who can provide me experiential knowledge, that person also who's given the khutbah becomes entirely irrelevant to life. Uh, if there are any khatibs out there who hear what I'm saying, you know, this is your challenge. This is, this is, in you decide, through you, Allah's religion either becomes a living, breathing being or a museum piece. And it all starts with this, you know, what we hear in our congregation, what we hear in our mosques. Because it's, it's how we relate to Masajidullah, to how we relate to Allah's, uh, we're places of worship. Thank you. Okay, I want to ask um, a question. Um, Mona and I were talking at, at the break, but I also want to add something. Is the, the topic of women at, you know, at the mosque, at Juma, um, and, you know, one question is, I mean, clearly, you know, you've come out and said that you don't believe the exception for women not having to go to Juma is, is founded in the evidence necessarily. Um, but so in a modern day condition, like what would be ideal presuming that a mosque actually has a decent space for women? Or maybe the question is too, what, what should, when we apply like to our time and place, what would be a right way to think about how a mosque should provide a space for men and women, and especially then um, taking into account children, since if, you know, women bring children and they cry or they run, you know, like that's also distracting. How, how how was that handled before? How could that be handled now? And even in the issue of um, now women have their own mosques spaces because they've been shut out of, of you know, spaces yeah. by men. And, you know, and then the idea of women, you know, giving the khutbah. Like, how does that also factor in? Are we, have we just been recipients of all this patriarchal tradition and that's actually not really well founded in the, in, in, in the Quran? Um, okay, so the practice of women mosques, um, uh, subhanAllah, I mean, it, it's, um, um, we, we have, uh, it's, it's several centuries old. I mean, it, uh, I, I've, um, I forgot the oldest one which I believe was in Al-Maghrib. Um, but anyway, I personally, I think that is, 
I, I don't want to say anything negative about it, but I, I think it is unfortunate because uh, this is not the established, I mean, we, we talk so much, so often about following the sunnah of the Prophet but this is not the, the sunnah in, in, in centuries of practice in the heart of Mecca and Medina. Uh, and the way that, that uh, and this is well documented, if in Mecca and Medina, despite all the conservatism of Mecca, of, of Arabia, um, they never developed a practice of excluding women behind in segregated in, in curtains, but while the practice varied whether they, the, a, a, uh, they, the way they would indicate areas for women and whether these areas would be side by side or towards the back or that, that did vary from one historical period or another, uh, as well as the number of women and in these mosques, depending on how stable and safe Mecca and Medina is within a particular historical period. Anyway, but there is, the, you know, there's a very heavy reliance on the hadith that says that when it comes to women, the best lines are the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the what are you call um, the back li lines in the back for women, and for men the best lines are the lines in the front. Um, and then there's a hadith that says uh, you know it's better for a woman to pray in a closet than in a room and in a room rather than a house and in a house rather than a mosque. I mean, but the problem is it's that if you if the, these hadiths are not reliable. They're, they're not they're not of a sufficient even come close to a sufficient level of reliability to overcome the actual reported practice of women at time of the Prophet and even after the time of the Prophet because we know that and until Quraysh sort of reintroduces, remember, that Quraysh um, was, as Umar ibn Khattab, the famous narrative from Umar ibn Khattab tells us, that Quraysh tended to, the Qurayshis tended to be conservative and restrictive towards women. And this is because the, 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 when, when they say, when, when they say that, they mean women of, um, of um, uh, honorable tribes and classes. Because at the same time that the aristocracy in Quraysh were very conservative towards the public role of women, they had no problem with the uh, the role that slave girls played in markets. They had no problem with the role that um, the, the, the 
women of so-called the red banners, these were the prostitutes in, in Mecca. They had no problem with the role that women played in taverns and bars and things like that. So basically, the, 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 the mind of Quraysh or the practice of Quraysh, in Quraysh was that respectable women from respectable tribes, from respectable families would play a more excluded role. And we know that once they go in Medina, as Omar ibn Khattab says, that they were scandalized by how women played a far more active role. And we have an indication of that when the fact that in Bay'at al-Aqaba, there are several women who go and make that covenant with the Prophet and And the issue is that instead of the women of Medina becoming more like the women of Quraysh, it was the other way around. The women of Quraysh became more like the women of Medina. Um, why, why am I saying all of that? Because remember that women play a very active role, very active role, in the time of Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and Adi. Once Quraysh comes to power during the Umayyad, the Umayyin, this is the first dynasty of Islam, they restore much of the same moors that used to exist in Mecca. If you are an aristocratic woman, woman you should be secluded. Women who are of a lower class, slave girls, poor women, they can be in the marketplace, they can be... There was, and, and this is a book, again, if Muslims, instead of, you know, so many feminists, so many, and, and again, I don't want to trash anyone because I, I don't want to get earn more enemies than I have, but... So many Muslim women call themselves feminists, but if they would just bother learn as much about the Islamic tradition as they would learn about feminist theory, we can get a lot accomplished. Mm -hmm. Because they would, they would soon discover that when Quraysh reinstituted these Meccan ethos, there was a considerable amount of resistance. There was considerable amount of resistance to that from Alil Bayt. That is where the, the character of someone like Sukaina, right? The, she, the, 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 the very famous Sukaina and her, what, what, what she was rebelling against is that she was seeing what she saw as a lot of what the Prophet ﷺ and his family has achieved in Medina was being rolled back by the Umayyads, including their attempt to seclude women, again, aristocratic women. And Sakaina was very open in rebelling against that. But even the role of Sufi women, most of whom were not Arab, 
And the 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 role that women like Rabia, uh, Rabia Adawiya, played was often, and that is why the Umayyads, the first century, were were often had hostile relations to these women, because they understood that they were they were in 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 a in a very complex. In the, in the in the garbs of mysticism, they were challenging what the Umayyads were doing culturally. So the Abbasids, it, it's, it, we, we see the role of women expand again, clearly expand. But the period of, especially the Crusades and the Mongols, which resulted in mass sexual assaults against Muslim women. What happens when foreign invasions target and use rape as an instrument of war, as the Crusaders did and the Mongols did, is the spread of very conservative ethos because it becomes dangerous to be a woman and it becomes dangerous to be a visible woman. Now, why am I saying all of this? Because it is all relevant to the jurisprudence of the, the relationship between women and space in sacred places. So when I want, you know, you, you, you you study the role of women in, the, 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 uh, in, in Medina, and you see a very dynamic role. And then you see that role shrink, 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 shrink in the Umayyad period. But you see all types of undercurrents of resistance. And then you see that role expand, expand, expand in the Abbasid period. And then you see that role shrink, shrink, shrink in the, in the various epochs of the Crusades and the instability of um, the various dynasties that are fighting one another. And areas like Damascus, which was right in the face of crusader violence and Mongol violence, the ethos towards women became more and more conservative, not because of, not because of religious doctrine, but because Unlike Cairo, for instance, Damascus was uh, invaded several times. The, the women in Damascus were raped in mass several times, and as a result, when you compare the ethos of the, the uh, and the cultural practices of women in places like Damascus to women in Cairo, you, you see that very clearly. Nothing makes people cringe in conservatism like invasion and instability and insecurity. And the fact that you know that if you send your daughter to school, well, she might be abducted and sexually violated by a bunch of, you know, barbaric, uh, so on. So when we go to the heart, Mecca and Medina, 
which is fascinating, which were not invaded, unlike Damascus, unlike Baghdad, and a place that was relatively in comparison more secure than like Cairo, for instance. Mecca and Medina preserved the pristine practice of not secluding women behind curtains or behind closed areas. And Mecca and Medina continued for centuries. For centuries, the practice of women regularly going to the mosque. Even the fanatic Wahhabis couldn't bring an end to it. As much as they hated seeing women, and I'm not just saying that, because the, we know that for the British officers reported about what the Wahhabis did when they entered Mecca and they found women. They declared the women who are in the haram to be, a, a, to be fair war captives. In other words, they took these women and enslaved them. That's how much they hated the idea of these. Well, if you had real families, why are you in them? Why you? Why do you let you just go around them? Because they came from Najd, and Najd was insanely conservative. In its the Najdis saw the Hijazis and their 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 attitudes about women as as completely heretical, completely corrupt, and 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 unacceptable. Now, of course. You know, it's the irony of ironies that the Najdis of today now have, you know, swung all the way uh, the other way, you know, even too extreme for someone like me. But subhanAllah, I mean, that's just, you know, wrong begets wrong. So what do we do with our masjids? Okay. If you... If, if you had scholars that studied history, they would very easily say the point is you could split the mosque between men and women half and half. We, you integrate that in the way we build our mosques. Or you, you have areas that are, you know, with nice ribbon or you know, as they do in Mecca, a, a little, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, it's not closed off area, but just like um, the that uh, uh, go up to here, the dividers, that tell you this is the area for women. But, and this is only in, in Salah, so that when we stand side by side, you, you the, the side you're sticking to is 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 man, man to man or woman to woman. But when it comes to Outside Salah, for I, Majid al Hussein, it was always men and women mixing, and they would, they would only separate during Salah. It is only when Wazarat al Awqaf became uh, uh, colonized by the Wazarat al Awqaf in Egypt became colonized by the Wahhabis. Of course, the Wahhabis that don't exist anymore, the Wahhabis of yesteryear. Then Wazart al-Aqaf started splitting, and their solution was, you know, it was a typical male chauvinistic solution is that they cramp women in, in these closed... As to, as to women, if, again, it is, it is, it's the way 
you organize your mosque. If we organize our mosques with full awareness of we take we, we take the women women's right to worship God in public spaces as a given, then we build accommodations accordingly. So you there is a space for women and you build childcare, nursery, where as because yeah we do have a hadith that Prophet والسلام, said if if you if you basically that if you have a child that is screaming and make it then just stay home. Well, why don't we have proper childcare that women who want to worship go put their children in childcare? It's a matter of what the community invests in what the community understands as what would please God. How can it please God that you exclude half the population? The God who created men created women. How can it be pleasing to God that I just want the men to worship me? And why don't you, you decide what you invest your money in? As, as a com community, we make that dis this decision. If, if it becomes just accepted norm that it is our obligation to provide proper professional childcare so that women can, ha can exercise their right to be in, in these spaces, it will happen. Um, Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I don't want to get into women giving khutbahs and stuff like that. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, it's not. I just. It's a, it's a, it's enough to say that. Yeah. I mean, I think from this, what's the most powerful, at least as a first step, is to understand that women have a right to claim their space in the mosque. If we go back to Medina and Mecca, like that, you know, like what we have become, which is just so shameful, like women, you know, having the worst part of of the mosque if they even have a place in the mosque, and that it's, you know not beautiful like the men's section it's not ventilated like the men's section it can't even be seen like the men's section right and that you know why should women be the receptacle of everything horrible in a mosque because it, it, this was not what was the original message and it shouldn't be that you know the patriarchal aspects of the tradition should dictate especially in our time what these spaces should look like I mean, so this is just my going off. But I also think that I know when, when we met and this idea of women don't have to go for Friday prayer, I mean, uh, so even the first thing is just for women to believe that it is their duty to go to Friday prayer and that, you know, with that comes rights, duties and rights, as you always say, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, of course, I, I, I feel horrible because it, it, 
I know that when women, like uh, women uh, contacted me recently. I mean, this, I've been contacted so often by the same scenario. Uh, the she can't concentrate in prayer because it's it's very small it's poorly ventilated the the even the uh, the monitor they have connected uh, their their is the you know tons of problems a lot of times the monitor doesn't even work uh the the volume is is all wrong so and so and so and when it comes down to prayer there's so many children screaming and yelling of course there's no child care not even and so she can't concentrate in prayer she she says that she you know and so she so she went and started praying in the back in the men's section so as typical of these cases the 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 board had an emergency meeting they didn't have an emergency meeting when the israelis stormed uh, aqsa they didn't of course have an emergency meeting when the aqsa sector to the aqsa mosque keeps violating left and right or, or emergency meeting and so many tons of things but they have an emergency meeting you know, a woman praying in the in the men's section and then they sent her a letter saying you know that if she if she continues to contaminate the space reserved for men uh, they're going to have to expel her from the mosque and and the irony is of course you know as these cases always go if the woman keeps insisting then they go actually they, they try to get a legal injunction but they don't say in the legal injunction that we are excluding her because a woman, they say that this is, a, you know, we are a privately incorporated mosque and that we have our bylaws and the, the board of directors have decided that we don't want this woman. So police come enforce the injunction uh, because we have the right to refuse service to any member, you know, and, you know, this is classic and it, it and it is no community can progress that is it that is at that is at, that is at war with its own better half mm -hmm. i mean these are our mothers our wives That's 50%, the intellectual drain upon the community. I mean, so you're, you're taking 50% of the intellectual resources within the community and you're excluding them. And then it's like entering the competition with one hand behind your back. And then we wonder why we lag behind. I mean, how often have are there good wives who talk their husbands out of a disaster i mean this stuff here is thanks to you because you, you've you've bugged me into doing this stuff here right alhamdulillah well before okay. you sharif but you know yes, alhamdulillah to, for sharif um but anyway so i i don't know i mean it's really um yeah it's just okay yes Uh -huh. And it's just for women. 
quick question. Okay, so we, we're, uh, we, I have two quick questions, even though we're already at 10.15, so because these are important. So Mona was asking, in, in Palestine, they have a couple of mosques where it's just women. Can women give the khutbah there? Um, and then secondly, um, Reem asked a really important question, which I think you can answer hopefully quickly, since we're on the topic of women's rights. What is your position on women holding leadership roles? Some people cite a, a Bukhari hadith that claims that when the Prophet Muhammad, Islam, uh, uh, um, peace be upon him, found out that the Persians made the daughter of Husto yeah. their queen, he stated, never will succeed in such a nation as makes a woman a leader or a ruler. I have heard this used as a basis for why women should not rule nations or hold religious leadership roles. Is there a limit to the leadership role a woman can hold in Islam? So I, we're, just, yeah. we're out of okay. time. So. To, to the, women giving khutbah in, in a, an all-women's mosque is, is clearly permissible, in my opinion. Although, of course, there are some who said, some fuqaha who, who said, no, a woman can never give a khutbah, even if the congregation is all women, but I think they're clearly wrong. Uh, the more difficult issue is a mixed congregation. Although, I, I mean, I'll tell you, um, no one should give a khutbah just because they're a man or a woman. Let's put it this way. I am offended by a, a someone who is it's a, when a khutbah is put, when a woman is put forward to give a khutbah just because she's a woman as I am offended when just because someone is a man regardless of how abysmal their knowledge and their intelligence is uh, they are but I, I mean, that's a, that, that's an, a, a complicated issue because we have a, a long practice of saying when it's mixed congregation, it should only be men who give the khutbah. And of course, we ignore the fact that, well, the, the Prophet, والسلام, happened to be a man and the companions that were the closest to the Prophet because he was a man were also men. And so it's not surprising that but clearly when the congregation is in the masjid is a woman's masjid um i see no justification for for introducing a man to give the khutbah in an all woman's masjid um it should be the most knowledgeable right i think in an all, all if if you're going to if you're going to accept the 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 permissibility of an all woman's masjid then it should be all women, including the, the khatib. Mm -hmm. uh, you know. Uh, no, it, says it should be the most knowledgeable within the most, most knowledgeable women mm -hmm. uh, in the masjid. Right. But yeah, that's, that's something uh, the Shrutul Imama is. Um, leadership issue, that is, you know, uh, number one, this hadith is. If it's, uh, I mean, I've discussed it in speaking God's name, um, but it is not a reliable hadith, and it is, and even a hadith that is contradicted by, it's like a hadith that would that would say something that is scientifically incorrect. When human experience we've seen how many women have 
ascended to leadership positions and conquered and dominated Muslim men. I mean, Queen Victoria, you know, the joke is the Queen Victoria was the, the uh, what is that, uh, say the, 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 no, Queen Victoria. No, that, that's uh, that's uh, the um, that's, that's the most powerful caliph in in uh, in in history because she ruled over more Muslims than any other caliph. Um, I mean, uh, or so when you have a, a hadith aside from chains of transmission, when it's contradicted by. Um, lived human experience to put an ahadith hadith and to insist and anyway hadith like that is not of sufficient reliability to base a law that would have numerous implications vast social consequences on it and and this is the and that is precisely why even in Islamic jurisprudence, there are, um, you know, there, the the issue of what women, what you know, there are a lot, plenty of fuqaha said said women can serve as judges. There are plenty of fuqaha said that women can serve in any leadership leadership position except the khilafa, uh, with the, with the exception of being a khalifa. In other words, in my view, women can. There, in my view, there is no basis for restricting the leadership of women to any post, including the Khilafah. Um, there's just, it is amazing because all, if you knew the, the doctrinal traditions in Christianity and, and Judaism, in comparison, Islam would have been the religion that compared to other religions that has the most, the least doctrinal basis for restricting women. And yet what Muslims have done with their religion is astounding because compared to Christians and Jews, they became the most restrictive. But even there are certain historical things like when Shajar al-Dur in Egypt became the most influential political figure in Egypt and some fuqaha or the idea arose that well, what if we delegitimate, delegitimate her on the basis of the, on the basis that she's a woman and because as a woman then she cannot have a position of leadership and so on. It it generated a very interesting debate. Uh, you know, leave the politics aside when you find the, the debates among the jurists. And the most um, well-reasoned arguments or the, were the ones that basically said, find another basis to impeach Shajar al-Tudur other than the fact that she's a woman, because that's not that's not a legitimate grounds. You can say because she's corrupt, because she's an opportunist, because she's a sleazebag. I mean, but 
not on Shari positions. Um, the, women can occupy any position of leadership, including the Khilafah. There is no basis for excluding women. Um, and it is insane to try to exclude women on the basis of that report where it is not even a, a report that counts among the reports of the Sharia. This is a report that basically says the Prophet ﷺ casually commented that when a woman became, that he said, well, now, oh, now that they've put a woman in place, they'll never succeed. That's not a Tashri'i report. That's not a normative report. That's not a report about do X or do Y. It is of a genre of a report that cannot be used for any prescriptive position. So already, aside from the fact that it's, I don't believe it, it ever happened and it's not authentic, and the, it is, it's not in the nature of the Prophet ﷺ to, to have made silly, ignorant remarks like that. It's just, that's not the Prophet ﷺ. He didn't make remarks like, oh, now that a woman is in charge, well, that, that's just, but it's not even tashri'i. So when you find Muslims, it's like it's like male chauvinists grasping for anything to exclude women. It's like the hadith, the best lines are the, the lines in the back. Uh, okay, so the best lines and the lines in the back, by that logic, as I said in speaking God's name, so how do you get in the lines in the back, not in the lines in the front? You arrive late to prayer. So by that, if we took this hadith seriously, so the best lines would be the lines of the women that would wait till the last minute before Taslim in Salah to make sure she is in the, 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 the most backwards line. Does that make any reason? You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, so since the best line is the line in the, 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 the last lines. So a woman would say, okay, well, let me time my attendance and prayer to one minute or right before they sit for a Salah Ibrahimiyya so that I make sure I'm in the very last line because I want to be in the best line. Does this sound like something that the Prophet would say? Uh, you know, the women who come the latest to prayer are the best. <laughs> really? I mean, even before we get into chain of transmission and so on. And then they use that report as in as in all these cases of the women that I'm telling you about that come and contact me to complain, to tell women uh, that is why if, you know, if we even allow you to come to the mosque, then if you, you know, you shouldn't complain about a poorly ventilated area, area that's noisy and hot and difficult to breathe in and so on, because the best lines are the ones in the, the back. Did the Prophet say, but by that lot, if they had any rational capacity, did the Prophet say women should also be suffocated and uh, traumatized in a mosque? I mean, 
even if you accept that report, which is nonsensical, I don't know. It's just, you see how when Allah says, teach you kitab and hikmah, because this is precisely an example of the lack of hikmah. When you find something that absolutely makes no sense, irrational to the extreme, you it's so irrational that you can't even figure out how do you speak about it seriously without worrying about sounding dumb. How is that consistent with a revelation that says, teach you kitab and hikmah? How? Alhamdulillah. Thank you. Okay, well, we're at 10.30, so thank you everyone for being with us. Um, we, were, we were complaining the surah was too short, so we made up for it in the Q&A. <laughs> yeah. Alhamdulillah. So um, please join us tomorrow for um, our Q&A on dispelling myths um, when it comes to spiritual and sexual abuse at 4 o'clock Eastern time um, on Zoom. It'll be amazing. Um, and inshallah, inshallah, um, thank you, Sheikh, for this incredible halakha. Um, and inshallah, we look forward to the next one. Have a wonderful rest of the evening, and hopefully we'll see you tomorrow, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.